Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. The Sporting Capital on SEN, your home of sport. Uh, it's a very good evening to you, and you know that it's been a little while since we've been on the Sporting Capital, and we've got the intro music from about two years ago, but it's great to be back with the Sporting Capital. Sam Hargraves with you. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. of course, is the number to get yourself involved. There's been a lot happening and a lot to discuss throughout the course of the day, so the number, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. We've got a big show lined up over the next three hours and plenty to talk about with you as well. 15 minutes time, the man just crowned T20 International Player of the Year. His Scorchers just won their fourth BBL title. Mitch Marsh is going to be our feature guest on the show. After 8 o'clock, Pete Hooley is going to join us, uh, NBL champion and part of uh, the NBL's coverage uh, just about each and every night. He's absolutely killing it, is our man Pete Hooley. But as the basketball world is mourning, that shock injury... To Josh, uh, to Joe Ingalls, it's just it was horrible to see what for him, what happens for him next. Does he come home? It's it's all a lot to process. One of the most popular basketballers that we've had uh, come from this country and an extraordinary career. I think he's played uh, up until that injury. At one point, I think he'd played over four hundred consecutive games of NBA. Um, and his Utah team always making it uh, into the playoffs. So uh, looking forward to catching up with Pete Hooley. Peter Johnston, uh, Kuyong uh, Tennis Director, is going to join me to try and make sense of what was probably the most extraordinary Australian Open ever. I can't remember a tournament that started off in infamy and ended up in such glory. We would be hard-pressed to remember a tournament that's had just about every single type of, whether it be controversy or celebration or highlight, lowlight, and everything in between that the Australian Open had this year. So really looking forward to catching up with Pete Johnston uh, as well. And we're going to talk to a man who's been covering the Cincinnati Bengals since they last were in a Super Bowl 33 years ago. He's a sports anchor with WW T5, the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati. George Vogel is going to join me just to talk about what this means. It's been, uh, it's been 12 months where we've seen droughts be broken, haven't we? we? We've seen Melbourne 64 years. We saw the Milwaukee Bucks 50 years. Even last year's Super Bowl, Tampa Bay. We've seen the Penrith Panthers. We've seen Australia finally break their drought at the T20 World Cup. So it's been, and we've seen Ash Barty just break a 44-year drought uh, at the Australian Open. So we've seen droughts broken. And will it be time for the Cincinnati Bengals? So looking forward to catching up. Uh, with George Vogel as well. There's been plenty that's been happening throughout the course of the day as well. Probably the biggest, I think, story happening at the moment, and it's an extraordinary one when you look at it, that if I was to tell you that an AFL coach 
was going to be sacked for winning a premiership, um, maybe even a pre-season premiership. Um, was was close to being let go, but then was told they needed to improve. So they did everything that was asked for them in terms of improving the way in which they managed the team. And after that, went went away and won a premiership and uh, and maybe added several other accolades to that football club. Said that they were every likelihood of not being renewed as coach. You'd be amazed. But that's a situation that essentially that's facing Justin Langer. Wins the first ever T Twenty World Cup, retains the Ashes in brutal fashion in inside 12 days and now is fighting for his job. So Tom Morris has broken a story that uh, parts of which have been refuted by Cricket Australia, but we'll start with Tom Morris speaking about how Cricket Australia have handled the Justin Langer situation. He broke the story about the news. Um, he broke the story, the news that there was a, a meeting that had taken place with Justin Langer and Cricket Australia. He reported that it had got heated when the idea, the possibility of Justin Langer having to uh, reapply for his job came up and he spoke about Justin Langer's reaction to that. Oh yeah. He was insulted. Yeah. Um, this wasn't, um, this wasn't Nick Hockley, the CEO or Ben Oliver saying you will have to reapply for the job. It was simply raised as a possibility and even to raise it insulted Justin Langer. He, his response was, uh, you know, Angry. It, it was nuclear. He, he went. He went ballistic when they asked him, um, you know, whether what what his thoughts would be on reapplying for the position, um, and that was, um, you know, that that was the hottest part of the meeting. You know, there was it, there, there was lots of discussion topics which were delicate, but when they raised the possibility of reapplying for a role that he has held for four years, almost as if he had to, um, you know, go on trial again, again, mm. uh, you know, up against other candidates who have far inferior CVs to him. Um, it's no surprise, knowing you know, uh, knowing Justin from afar, but also understanding the landscape at the moment, that his, <laughs> his response was pretty pointed. So that was Tom Morris speaking on SEN. He went on to say this about Cricket Australia's handling of the Langer situation. There must be things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that makes them nervous about re-signing Langer for anything, you know, re-signing him full stop or re-signing him certainly longer than a 12-month deal. The, Justin Langer's uh, strengths as a coach are that he um, has great care. He has an unbelievable work ethic as he did as a, did as a player. But he's also moody and he has a, a, a tendency to, um, to be unpredictable and the players don't like that. Um, I, Cricket Australia, I, I think, is not covering itself in glory here at all. You know, the, the Ashes finished a couple of weeks ago. Um, we have another 10 or 11 days until the Australian men's team play again, and Justin Langer's not even involved in that T20 series against Sri Lanka. So I'm not sure what they're waiting for. You know, th th this, this story is only getting out of hand because Cricket Australia is, you know, fumbling around for the right answer. I know the board is meeting on Friday, and, and that will surely determine Justin Langer's future. But everyone is frustrated in this situation. And Cricket Australia has a recent history of mishandling almost every single um, delicate situation that has confronted it. And this is another one. And again, I think they're at risk of doing uh, just laying a disservice by delaying it, but also doing the players a disservice by making it seem like, even if this is not the case, mm. that they're the ones that are pushing them out. In, in the end, they make the final call. And at the moment, we don't have an answer. And everyone, in this, everyone who is involved in this 
saga is frustrated at how long it's taking and how uncertain it is. Tom Morris from Fox Sports on SEN Breakfast earlier today. And Cricket Australia released a statement uh, refuting uh, aspects of that story and even mentioned Tom by name, wanting to say that there was inaccuracies in the story written by him. And uh, one of those inaccuracies was the fact that uh, they believe that the... uh, that the meeting got heated. They said, we do not comment on confidential conversations, but uh, we uh, we reject outright the assertion that the meeting was fiery or heated and that Justin was asked to reapply for, the, for his job. Well, Tom never reported that he was asked to reapply. He reported that the possibility of him reapplying was brought up. That was his report. So there's a little bit of difference in what's being said there. Uh, They've said Justin has always been contracted as head coach through the middle of uh, this year and we have consistently maintained that discussions around the future of the role would commence following the conclusions of the Men's Ashes series. Friday's meeting was the first time that we had the opportunity to meet meet together in person, reflect on the team's success and discuss the road ahead. We'll continue with this process and make an announcement once it's complete. Crash Craddock, the most respected voice uh, in cricket journalism, spoke about the possibility of uh, Langer having to reapply for his job. The two things that struck me were just the sheer irony of that you have to reapply for the job. On the same day, three hours later, you were admitted into the Australian Hall of Fame, uh, which included a press release where the chief executive, who was also in the meeting with Justin Langer, lauded Justin for his coaching abilities of Australia as well as his playing career. So... That I have to say, Kane, I, I, I don't agree with Langer being asked to apply for his job. If they can't come to terms, that's, you know, we get it. If mm. the differences with the players are unreconcilable, that happens. But after all he's been through to have a job for four years, I don't believe he should have to reapply for it. Crash Craddock speaking to Kane Corns earlier today. It is fascinating, isn't it, that, that somebody who we were talking about um, earlier on last year being told that, oh, you're too intense and the players have just got some issues and we all get together and we address those. And then from that point, we see a very um, outwardly anyway, harmonious team, a lot of hugging, a lot of smiling and laughing at the T20 World Cup. I covered every single game with Chuck Berry that Australia played and there looked to be nothing wrong. Whenever they'd put the camera on the dressing room, um, any time that we flashed to the Australian camp, uh, there seemed to be a great camaraderie and a, a great vibe happening. And the players have all spoken about that. You've had Glenn Maxwell, um, Marcus Stoinis and Adam Zampa all say that the, the, the culture that existed within that T20 World Cup squad, they wanted to re-emulate in at the Melbourne Stars. So everyone's saying how great it was at the T20 World Cup. We've just had an incredibly successful Ashes campaign and then the guy who's been at the helm for that somehow isn't guaranteed a job. Malcolm Conn's been, um, who was a former um, Cricket Australia employee, also highly respected cricket voice and cricket journalist, has been doing the rounds of media today saying he thinks that Lang has been a dead man walking for a long time and that um, he's also tweeted and been quoted that he hasn't spoken to one person within amongst the cricket setup that wants Justin Langer to still be coach. This is an extraordinary situation that this amount of success can ultimately end in the person who's been at the helm of it no longer having a job. It is amazing. Uh, so I'd love to get your view on that. one three hundred seven three six seven three six zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. And at the end of all of it, you can't help think that 
one of our greatest openers and now an incredibly successful coach, someone who just his, whose passion for the baggy green and all things Australian cricket is palpable. Every, I haven't ever spoken to, interviewed, heard anyone speak with as much passion about Australian cricket than Justin Langer in my lifetime. And yet that person seems to be on the nose. That person is being disrespected in the manner in which they are at the moment. It's extraordinary, this circumstance. And I'd love to get your view on it. one three hundred seven three six seven three six 736 736 or 0433-98-11-16. A heap of other things that have been discussed throughout the course of the day as well. I'll play you bits of Ryan Vague, who is Jordan Degoe's manager. I spoke to Dwayne Russell earlier on today. Adam Simpson has spoken today uh, at a press conference and also two on radio about what's happening uh, with the Jack Darling situation. Paddy McCartan has been added to the Sydney Swans list uh, via their uh, pre-season uh, sup list uh, ability. Um, and we've had Kane Corns talking about uh, the ability to criticise um, and analyse women's sport. Emma Race joined him, who's been a, a really strong voice in the space of women's sport for a very long time. So there's that and a whole lot more that I want to throw at you. We're throwing a heap of burly in the water to get you giving us a call, one 736 736 So we can text in at any time, 0433-98-1116 on the temper text. Temper, uh, a mattress like no other. couple off the text. I love JL, but the Ashes win against a very mediocre England doesn't cover the two losses to India at home. In his tenure, India thrashed England in England. We need to take a step further, building a great side, hopefully on top of the world again uh, in the next year or two. Uh, And then Dean says, I feel Justin Langer deserves another go for at least four to five years. If they don't, England will snap him up fast. Goodbye to Australia. That's from Dean. Crash was of the view that that would never happen, that... uh, that Justin Langer would ever go and uh, and coach another country. It's his passion is for Australian cricket and for uh, the baggy green in particular. I'd love to get your view on it. One three hundred seven three six seven three six. But Mitch Marsh is going to join us next. The newly crowned T Twenty International Player of the Year is the Sporting Capital back for twenty twenty two. Uh, it's great to be back with the Sporting Capital, one 736 736 Muzzer in Geelong, wait right there. I'm going to get to your thoughts in just a moment. Uh, 0433 off the temper text. But uh, it's great to have this man uh, on the program as our feature guest for the evening. Um, recently named the T20 International Player of the Year, which is just extraordinary when you look at the build-up uh, to that tournament in the World Cup last year. Mitch Marsh was the form player going into the World Cup, somehow managed to get dropped halfway through it and then returned to play an innings that Brett Lee described as one of the best, or Shane Watson rather, described as one of the best T20 international innings of all time. 77 off 50. He made 14 off the first three balls uh, to get Australia home in a record uh, T20 World Cup final chase against New Zealand. He's been phenomenal for the Scorchers when he's been able to play and they secured their fourth BBL title. He's a very good man and always generous with his time. Mitch Marsh has been good enough to jump on the line. G'day, Mitch. G'day, mate. How are you? Uh, all the better for speaking to you. Congratulations. It's a it's an incredible honour, but it's an honour well-deserved. Yeah, um, I was uh, very proud to, to receive that award. Um, obviously, so much hard work goes into um, you know, playing the game. And um, certainly these days with, with COVID around, um, the travelling and all that uh, is extremely hard. So, um, you know, I uh, accept that award on behalf of all my, my teammates and um, everyone that's travelled with us. Um, throughout Cricket Australia and our fans. And, um, yeah, it's a great reward for what's been an incredible 12 months. When you look back on the the World Cup in particular, 
what what's the overwhelming sense, feeling, emotion that that sort of washes over you? Um, I think just pure joy, to be honest. Um, I mean, it's been spoken about that not too many people gave us a chance um, going into that into that World Cup, certainly in those conditions. But um, I can honestly say that when I got over there and first game, uh, batting at number three, looking down at the guys batting behind me, in front of me, and our bowling attack. I just, I think the whole squad had this overriding um, just confidence that we knew that if we played our best cricket, um, we could beat anyone. And in those tournaments, it's pretty cutthroat. You've got um, four, four, four pool ma- or five pool matches, top two go through to the final. Um, it's about playing good cricket at the right times and um, yeah, it was, uh, I guess the feeling is just pure joy and, and the sense of real being so proud of ourselves of the way we did it. And yeah, it was just amazing. You've experienced a lot in your cricket career and you've also, and you've experienced on plenty of occasions being brought up in the sides and being left out of sides. When yep. JL, I'm presuming, tells you that actually we're not going to play you against England halfway through the World Cup... How does that feel? I mean, you've been through this before. Do you think, oh, not again? Or take us inside the conversations you have to to, to try and make sure that you don't drop the bundle. Um, did you always think you were coming back in, or how did that all play out? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a interesting uh, time throughout the World Cup. Um, probably one of the first times I've ever been dropped where I wasn't expecting it. I think a lot of the times, yeah. Um, when you get the tap on the shoulder, you you know you're either out of form or someone else is coming back in um, when you're sort of just on the fringe. But um, to be honest with you, the conversation was was fine. Um, I, you know, as a player, you're always disappointed, and I was I was fairly surprised at the timing of it. But um, once JL explained the reasons, I I just accepted them, and and I had great um, belief that I'd get another another opportunity throughout the World Cup, and. Um, I think when you when you get dropped, sometimes you can um, you can be angry, you can want to prove people wrong. Um, I've I've been through those emotions throughout my career, and um, I can honestly say that it might it might come off once, but it generally doesn't get anywhere get you anywhere. Um, I just stayed positive. We had such a great group. Um, like I said, I, I prepared as if I was going to play the next game, hoping that I would. And um, I think that sort of mentality just always team first and um, understanding we're in a World Cup so enjoy every moment, moment of it um, that mentality allowed me to came, come in and, and perform for the last couple of games Well I can relate to that, I got dropped for an under-18s grand final but I still bought my bag on the day just in case the coach says <laughs> and it's very similar, yeah, very similar. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mitch, I, in all seriousness I've listened to Ashton Agar talk about the fact that you know, he was absolutely devastated because to, 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 he assumed yeah. given he, at the time he was the number one ranked bowler um, for the Australian side yep. internationally, and when he didn't get to play, and but he spoke about that it was it, it was just down to the to the to the brilliant culture within that group mm. and, and the supportive nature of everybody in that setup that meant that he was able to get over it a lot quicker than he thought and reinvest. And he was one of the first people to run out when you and Glenn Maxwell were there to to to, to steer it home. Um, it must. It speaks volumes, doesn't it, of of what exactly was going on from a, a support setup and a culture setup during that time. Yeah, it's, it was amazing. Um, I think you know a lot of successful teams always talk about that. Um, that it's you know it's a full squad mentality, and 
I know we had the test documentary. I, I wish we had the T20 World Cup documentary. It would have been a hell of an insight for people to see uh, how we went about it and um, some of the shenanigans. It was just great, you know, playing golf together. And, and um, I guess T20 gives you that bit more of a break to um, be able to go and play your golf. And I mean, we couldn't leave the hotel apart from golf, but it was, um, yeah, just a, such a tight-knit group. And I'm really excited. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that we... Um, you know, have only have to wait another eight or nine months to to get another crack at it because it sort of means that the same team will will hopefully be together and um, yeah, to experience the World Cup in our home country will be amazing. It will, and I suppose it it leads in and without trying to blindside you at all. And I know there's things you can and you can't say, and I absolutely respect both of those, uh, all of that. Um, does it? What's your view when you sit back and you've had you've got your own personal relationship with Justin Langer, who's coach at the Scorchers, um, now in Australia set up. How do you view what's happening at the moment? Will he or won't he be? And, and do you have a view on whether he should be? <laughs> Look, it's um, I, it's been a pretty crazy um, scenario, I guess. And I was thinking today that mm. it seems that every professional sporting coach goes through this. Um, I'm sure that the decision we made on him in the in the near future, whether it's before Pakistan or after Pakistan. Um, for me as a player, I've got no idea. Um, and it's certainly don't want to be reading any of my comments in the paper because um, I'm I'm sure, like most people, everyone's yeah. sick of it and just wants to get on with it. So, yeah, um, yeah well, it's always hard to comment. It is, and I understand that. But to put that aside, what has he been for you personally, uh, given that you've got a, a different affiliation because it's, it comes from state level and a long time, uh, a WA, all of that. What, what's he been for you in your career? I'll tell you what he has been. He's been a coach for over a third of my life, which when you think about it, it's a bloody long time. It is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if there's one person that knows me well, it's him. <laughs> um, the Scorchers celebrations, moving on. Uh, are they Have they finished or are they still going in earnest? <laughs> Unfortunately, they've... Uh, They've basically finished. Um, I'm at home on day two or three of quarantine, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, there's, uh, COVID has got a lot in in the way of a lot of things, but um, winning a World Cup and winning the Big Bash in the space of three months and not really being able to celebrate it is probably one of the most frustrating things I've ever experienced. So um, at some stage, someone will see me in Perth at a random time and I'm going to be celebrating both of them. Ah, good. It's good <laughs> to hear. Hey, with, with the summer... It's been a, we've been, I'm hearing an interesting chat today about because the cricket landscape is changing uh, so much. Yep. So the Ashes was a monumental success for Australia, but the BBL, where we're, try, we're still trying to figure out how to get it right, we've got mm-hmm. the women now who are playing such incredible cricket that they deserve to get some, some clear air as well. We've got a one-day international series that was cancelled. Cricket has more forms than any other sport. Do you have yep. a, an idea? Do you are you a bit of a deeper thinker into the game? Do you look ahead and think, well, how does it all fit in in a summer? Do you have an idea of what the ideal summer would be? Do you feel like there's a, a, a possibly one of the disciplines needs to go to enable the others to actually live a, 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 a more fulfilled life, so to speak? Um, no, I mean I, I'm certainly not a deep thinker um, with all that sort of stuff, and there's probably people that get paid a lot more than I do to, to make those decisions. Um, yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Um, I think the Big Bash is probably the one that it, it takes up, you know, the majority of the summer now. 
Um, so, and there's there's been a lot of talk about it being shortened. Um, I'm not really sure what they'll do there, um, but I certainly think that we need to start attracting the big overseas players and um, and keep them here for the whole tournament. So how they do that is either shorten it or pay them more, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, the I was interested today to to listen to a conversation that 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 Kane Corns was having about you know, how can you, you know, what's the right way to criticise or, or critique, criticise not the right word, critique um, women's sport off the back of the women's test, which was absolutely phenomenal. And it got me thinking on a deeper level about um, when it comes to players and, and listening to what the media or experts say about a particular player's performance, you've been on the receiving end of that. And we've seen great examples where someone um, like a Cam Green, here's Ricky Ponding talking about his technique in the commentary, adopts that advice and then thrives. But then there's also, you know, the way that Mitch Stark has felt at times with some of the criticism that's been levelled at him. I, I sort of flipped it back and when someone said, well, we should be able to criticise them the same way that we do the men. And I got to thinking, are we overcritical when it comes to the men anyway? So do you, when you guys hear uh, critique, criticism, analysis, do you know what you think is – do you have an idea of what you think is fair or unfair in that space? Um. Very good question. Uh, I don't think it's, I mean, it's it's a difficult one to answer. Um, I just, from my own experience, if you play at the top level, um, people are always going to have an opinion of you, whether it's going to be good or bad. Mm. And when you're playing um, test cricket, whether it's female or male, um, that is the pinnacle of our sport. And ultimately, if you don't perform, you're going to be criticised or questioned or spoken about. Um the media's job, right? That's what everyone's. Um, that's, that's their job. So, um, yeah, I think you know, there's obviously some go harder than others, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. But I don't, yeah, I don't really have an opinion on that, to be honest. No, that's okay. I'm just conscious that we also know a lot more about um, you know people's mental health these days and about constructive yep. versus negative and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it is a great overall question to have as we, as we should all be evaluating how we go about doing what we do, mate. It, it, I always enjoy catching up with you for a chat. I know you're missing Sri Lanka and, and fair enough too. It's been a packed schedule for you. I look forward to seeing yeah. you. I reckon you'll be going to Pakistan. Something tells me. Um, so good luck if that's to eventuate and, and congratulations again on Scorchers world cup T20 player of the year. It's great to see you. Um, succeeding in the way that you are. And thanks for giving us some time this evening. Anytime, anytime. Thank you. Uh, Mitch Marsh, absolute star of a player and a star of a bloke uh, as well. Um, Muzz has been really patient to wait on the line uh, to have a, a say about uh, Justin Langer. G'day, Muzz. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, my friend. I can't believe when you've just spoken to a gentleman that, that um, when JR took over, we were, we were sandpaper gate. The Australian public hated the Australian cricket team for cheating. Um, they were a bunch of morons, all of that sort of stuff. He's got them back now winning a World Cup that we weren't meant to win. We've won the Ashes. Okay, the Indians beat us, but they're allowed to beat us because it doesn't matter what you do to them. They've they got their own law. Um, he should have been given a contract the day that they were handing out the, the Man of the Match Award at the end of the Ashes and sign here for the next five years because we need him. He promotes players that, that um, people go, oh, I don't know about him. You look at the fast bowler from 
um, Western Australia that got five for against Adelaide in the Adelaide test. You look at the young blokes that got the, the wickets in Melbourne. And I don't know why Cricket Australia haven't got some balls, but then they're duds, um, to come out and actually sign him up. And then all the media, and not you personally, will then stop. He said this, he said that, I said this, and he went that. Um, and, the, and I would like to respond to Kane's comments this morning. I don't think you can you can have a go at the ladies when they're all only half paid. When they're professionals, I think we have the right to then because we're, our money is being spent on them a bit more than what it is now. And the ladies doing an awesome job. You know, you look at the soccer. We're, we're um, you know, we were dudded by a referee that couldn't see someone's arm being held, which would have been a penalty in any other country. Um, the ladies draw the ashes and only have to win one game this week and they win the ashes. Um, the AFLW, they couldn't kick more than one goal in the first three quarters when they first started. Now we're getting goals almost like the men. And I think people should remember all of that and have a lovely evening. Go Blues. Muzza, always love hearing from you, mate. Thank you very much for the call. Greatly appreciated. Uh, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Yeah, Kane was very uh, clear on the fact that, and to acknowledge that he knew that the AFLW was uh, semi-professional, part-time, and that we were doing full-time jobs at the same time, uh, and and dealing with a a COVID situation unique to any other sport because of the fact that they're all full-time employees and trying to navigate hubs and uh, and schedule uncertainty. So he was very. Um, very clear on acknowledging that as well. And it was a fascinating conversation that he and Emma Race had. And I'm going to play a, a, little, bit of, a little bit of it uh, a little bit later. Um, but one three hundred seven three six seven three six 736 to have your view on Justin Langer, to have your view on, um, to have your view on whether he should or shouldn't be the next coach of Australia and what you think of the process that's unfolding pretty uncomfortably in and around his tenure. And the other thing I want to throw up at you tonight. And I'm going to play you what Brad Hodge had to say. And it just got me thinking overall. And I asked Mitch that question before about the overall structure of the summer. I think we're getting to a point where we have too much cricket. And I, I can't even believe I'm saying that because I grew up footy in the winter, cricket in the summer. My first trip to the MCG was to watch Australia in one day. But I've got a feeling that something needs to give when it comes to the cricket calendar. Because at the moment, it's all competing against itself. And and we're diluting a product, robbing Peter to pay Paul in some situations. And I just don't think we've got it quite right. I reckon that something has to go. And I reckon it's ODIs. I wouldn't mind getting your thought on that in just a moment. one 736 Sporting Capital. one is the number. Have your say on what we're discussing or anything else uh, that tickles your fancy. Uh, Josh uh, in Sunbury, keep, you keep dropping out, my friend. Give us a call back and we'll get you on air. Got have just got word that we've been just hanging out to see whether we will have Australian tennis royalty coming on to have a chat about all things Australian Open. And we just have confirmation that in about five minutes' time, Pat Rafter will join us on the Sporting Capital to sum up what was an extraordinary uh, Australian Open. Uh, Tom's in Chadson. G'day, Tom. Yeah, good evening. How are you going? Yeah, good. What have you got for me? Look, I was just wondering, you know, spills and rare players here job isn't unheard of in the corporate world. Mm. And if they are looking for a, a head coach, a white ball coach and a red ball coach, then conceivably it may be just a, you know, a, a business way of trying to 
get the right people because I'm just not sure how any single human can keep across first-class cricket, franchise cricket, the whole box and dice, and you know develop from the grassroots into those into those landscapes. So, but you know, I don't necessarily think it's about the person. It could just be about the uh, the market. If you follow me. Yeah, it would seem if that's the case, Tom, that that they're certainly going about it in a strange way. It, it doesn't seem to have that kind of structure. I, I hear what you're saying, and that has a very clear structure to it when you know that you are going to put contracts up for renegotiation, also put it out to tender, and all those things you're talking about absolutely happens in the business world on a regular, on a daily basis. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening at the moment. I fully agree with you about that there is three formats of cricket at the moment and having one person coach them all is almost impossible. And I think you're onto something there about maybe splitting the role. But it also leads into what I was talking about before. Do we have too many forms of cricket? Uh, yeah, I can, I can take a lead um, if you have a cricket. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, as much as um didn't used to like it, but 2020 is here to stay. You know, you've got to just accept that. Yeah. Um, and we know test cricket is test cricket. So, look, yeah, I, I think um, besides the 50 over World Cup, it's a little bit lost, I think, you know, 50 over cricket. So, take a lead. But then that, that actually is a bit of a bridge between the two different disciplines, right? So, you're down if you do, you're down if you don't, I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm now starting to turn to the belief that to, that, that one-day internationals, that there isn't really a space for them. It, it just seems that the world has changed and that we are adamant, and so we should be, that Test cricket is the pinnacle. This new thing's come along, T20, and, and then where does that leave one-day internationals? The crowds for the last few years have dwindled, even before COVID. If you go back and have a look at them, there was a massive crowd, um, which I think was for the opener of, um, of the Stadium, but in and around that and in the years preceding it and since, there hasn't been a whole lot to talk about in terms of crowd attendance. Ratings, I think, have, have dipped as well from last time I, I checked. It, I don't know what the place of one-day international cricket is. And if you were to take that out, and we did this year, by the way, I haven't heard one person bemoan the fact that there isn't this T20, uh, there isn't this one-day international series happening against New Zealand. I wonder now whether to try and make sure that your test cricket, your BBL, which is the, the future of, of bringing younger people in, that's where the money is, from the IPL to the BBL and all the tournaments around the world, and, and much more interest in the T20 World Cup now, it seems, in the one-day international World Cup. And now that with the emergence of women's cricket as well, you cannot fit it all into a summer. You just can't fit it all into an Australian summer. So something has to give. And I think, sadly, and I... It breaks my heart to say it because my earliest cricket memories of going to cricket were sitting in Bay 13 watching Merv Hughes warm up as a kid with my dad and, and those memories I hold incredibly dear. But it seems like there isn't a place for one-day international cricket anymore and I wonder if you remove that, does it then help the other formats flourish? That's, I'd love to get your view on it. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Pat Rafter to join us next. So how on earth do we wrap up the Australian Open after a tournament that started absolutely mired in controversy and conjecture uh, and a lot of angst and negativity? And that reared its head through some of the start of the tournament with different things that happened as well. And we talk about Novak and then the Peng Shui situation. And then we finish up in a place where we've had Dylan Orcott um, bow out in incredible circumstances and Mash Barty do something that we haven't seen for 44 years. Uh, and then the special K's bringing people to tennis that have never really bought into it as well. And then Rafa Nadal doing the unthinkable, coming back from two sets to love down. 
it is a tournament that I can never remember seeing one quite like. So we go to Tennis Royalty to get his thoughts. Pat Rafter, the two-time major winner, the US Open, two-time Wimbledon finalist. Pat, thank you so much for giving up some time. How do we sum up this Australian Open? Sam, I think you said it perfectly, mate. It had all of those things. At one stage, we saw, thought it was going to be chaotic. Going back to November, December, when Omicron was also um, showing its head and is becoming really virulent, the, the big concern there was how are we going to keep the players safe from catching it and are we going to have a tournament at all? So we didn't really speak that much about it, um, but but it, the, the, they got through that, those uh, four weeks. The odd player tested positive, but outside of that, it was really clean. And then, obviously, the Novak situation and then how it finished was, oh, I mean, it, it really was mind-blowing. What to you, I mean, when you look at it and, and, and trying to think your way through it, what's the overriding sense for you about this tournament? It, it'll live on in whether it be infamy mm. or, uh, mm. in, or glory. Oh, I want to say glory. Mm. But I think whoever wants to see it their way will see it in their own, in their own light. Um, whether it's a Novak controversy or the um, or the Ash Barty, for me it's Ash Barty, but I'm unbelievably biased. So I, I've got to be careful how much I go on about her. No, not at um, all. It, it's an extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary okay. thing that we've yeah. just seen. What did you make of it being there on the night? Well, I sort of watched her whole progression throughout the summer and I saw her first match and I was texting her manager who also helps her out in the tennis court as well. He's a good tennis player. And we're just commenting on just her mind just wasn't there. Playing against a young American girl, Coco Golf, who's very, very good. Um, asked down and set in a break. Looked really distant, not even wanting to be there. Somehow got out of that match. And then from there, she kept the composure all the way through. Just this, I don't know, very laid back, um, very in control, hitting the ball very well. I think seemed to phase her. And then I was surprised she was able to carry that through with all the pressure at the Australian Open. But she found a way that really worked for her uh, mentally. And she, even in the final, there's one or two little occasions where I thought, oh, this is interesting. She's actually showing something. Um, but the uh, the end result was I really believe the crowd had a big impact in helping to get over the line as well. Because when she was down 5-1, to me, the mindset then as a player is, all right, let's just stop the rot. Let's just hold the serve here and keep a few balls back and see what happens on on the other on your opponent's serve. And and what we saw then was um, Collins probably get a fraction tight. Ash came up with some pretty brave shots. And then at 5-3, the crowd just went, all right, game on. And then they really lifted Ash. I mean, they really, not once they lifted Ash, but they they probably gave her a bit more of a sense of purpose and then got under uh, Daniel Collins' skin a bit. Um, and I thought that was a really telling part of and being very evident that the crowd can really help. Pat, speaking of crowd, speaking of Pat Rafter, it, it was a big issue at whichever way you fell on either side of it throughout the whole tournament. Are we seeing now a change in tennis that, that we need to get used to, that it's going to be more vocal, it's going to be noisier, it's going to be bit more rock and roll or do you think that it's going to even go back the other way how do you feel about the whole crowd situation oh, i actually like the atmosphere of the crowd the australian crowd can get right into it especially if you're australian and you're playing there or if you're or if you've earned your, your stripes like federer like nadal 
Um, but you know what? They're, they're tough on Novak. They've never warmed to Novak very well. He's won nine times. Um, but if when I do uh, corporate talks, very, very few people want to see Novak win because I often ask on the show of hands who wants him to win because he's generally in the final. It's just an interesting one with Novak. He, he just never has got the, the Australians behind him. But with the other guys, they're, they're right behind their passionate and they are and they are quite boisterous. And, yeah, towards the end of the night, when people get a little bit tipsy too, sometimes comments come out or a bit rowdier and things. Um, I, it's, it's always sort of been there. Uh, the US Open crowd can be unbelievably noisy as well. So it can happen. But I guess what we saw this time, especially with Vanassi and Mick, was... Uh, you know, the, the sort of rock stage sort of crowd, the soccer crowd. Um, interesting. I, I really don't know where it goes. I don't think it gains much except what I'm really interested to see is how those guys go when they start playing doubles overseas because they're not Australian. You know, they're playing away from home. I'm not 100% sure they're going to have that type of crowd support. Well, I'm pretty sure they're not going to. And then you're also going to come up against some of the locals in doubles. I'm pretty sure they're not going to cheer that hard for those boys. And I just don't know how they maintain it and how or where they go from there. What about Rafa? Mm. I, 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 I was watching going, the bloke is as drenched as I've ever seen a human being <laughs> after the first game, yet somehow wins it in five. Mm. He shocked me the whole tournament. I just, oh, I, I never backed Rafa. From the word go, um, I, I just thought he was a step slow. Watching him at the French Open last year, I thought he was a little bit sluggish. Just wasn't the same. He got through that draw pretty well. I thought he was going to have a tough one in the semis against Berrettini. He found a way. He got lucky in the quarters against Shapovalov. Shep- I don't know how rare he is. Yeah, thank you. The Canadian boy um, in the end, but he found grit and he got through it again and that match with Medvedev, he had no right to win that. Two sets of love down, two all. Medvedev had love 40. And I reckon if he could take his time back, he'll go back to that situation and not make those unforced errors. I think he got a little bit cocky. He was really on, really in control. He Every game that Rafa served, Medvedev felt like he was in every game breaking a serve. So took a little bit off. You know, Rafa got himself and he, um, he just kept fighting, fighting. And what a champion, mate. I, I was really happy for him. Um, I just thought it was amazing, and I, I, I went to bed halfway through the fourth, um, just going on the basis that I don't know who's going to win now, except who doesn't cramp first. But that's probably my own <laughs> issues that I had in the past. But those guys seem to get through to the very end. Hey Pat, um, great to be able to chat to you for for a brief time. We thank you so much uh, for jumping on the line at at short notice. You've always been really generous with your time with me, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Good on you, Sam. Thanks, mate. Uh, Tennis royalty, an absolute privilege to speak to Pat Rafter. Cannot thank him enough for his time. Uh, if you've got a view on how you've, where you started with this Australian Open and where you might have finished with this Australian Open, there's still a lot to play out here. There's still questions that need to be answered when it comes to the conduct or the processes that happen, the communications that happen that we know about and ones that we don't know about when it comes to Novak Djokovic. And there's other questions that read their head throughout the tournament as well. But to be where it started and then to find where it finished, you couldn't find polar opposite places, I don't think. Did it win you back by the end? Did, did Were you 
I don't want any piece of that after what happened at the start. And then by the time it ended, were you totally reinvested again because of the stories of Dylan Alcott, Ash Barty? Did you jump on the special K train? Did Rafa just have you in disbelief? one 736 736 Big second hour. Pete Hooley to join me. Pete Johnston as well to talk about the Australian Open a little bit further. Our first sporting capital of the year, also almost unofficially, we've uh, lost the openers from last year. We're trying to find them. These are circa 2019, but uh, with all that being said, it's great to be back uh, in the sporting capital chair. one three hundred seven three six seven three six 736 to join me at any point uh, to have a chat about anything on the sporting agenda. We've been speaking about the Justin Langer situation in the first hour and also throwing up whether to try and make sure that Test cricket continues to flourish, that T20, which we know is the cash cow, uh, to, that continues to provide the money for the sport to flourish as well, to get them to get as much sunshine as possible. Is there an element of cricket? Is there a discipline of cricket that needs to go? Uh, cricket's like no other sport. I don't, I don't know any other sport, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. I don't know any other sport where there's three and there's actually five different disciplines of cricket. Test, one day is T20, T10, the 100 there's just too much. So to make sure that the rest survive and thrive, do we need to cull some? You ever overgrown your garden? It's like, well, they're all competing for the same bit of moisture in the, in the soil. Some of them have to be pulled out so the others can flower and blossom and bloom and all that kind of stuff. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Coming up this hour, Pete Hawley, devastating news about Joe Ingalls. Um, yeah, it's been confirmed that he'll miss the rest of the year with a pretty severe knee injury. And what does that mean at 34, 35 to his NBA career? At one stage, he played over 400 consecutive games. He's a linchpin of the Utah Jazz setup. Much loved, much respected. What does that mean for him now? Uh, and and just will he find a way back there or does he find a way back to Australia? We'll talk all things NBL as well. What a round that was. Some of just incredible basketball played across the most recent round of NBL. We'll speak to Peter Johnston uh, about the Australian Open, the uh, Kuyong tennis director. Uh, and then after nine o'clock, George Vogel, a long-time anchor and reporter on all things Cincinnati Bengals from Cincinnati in Ohio is going to join us to chat about them getting into their first Super Bowl in 33 years. A couple off the tech before I get to Adrian uh, and Justin. Um, Pat Cash, we just had on before, true Aussie legend, not just tennis, great human. Uh, that's Dean Geelong, couldn't agree more. Um, on one-day internationals, if there's no one internationals, that means there's no first-class one-day games either. Uh, if there are, what are they playing for? I agree, test cricket is better than one day. It would be nice to go back to the six-test summer, but I guess more T20 internationals would take their place instead. Why not just let the Aussie players play the second half of the Big Bash after the Sydney test? That's from Dan in South Bank, this is what Brad Hodge threw up something quite left field about what he would like to see in terms of an Ashes format or Australian summer format with the men. Look, I love this format. I, I would have loved to have seen the, uh, you know, the, the male side adopt this format as well because, yeah, let's be honest, England copped a flogging against the Australian men's side. And then if you had their one-day side come out and try and resurrect the summer on the back of that, it would have been pretty cool to watch. Um, and this is why I love this format because it tests you across and it tests your squad across mm. all three forms in a short period of time. And you have to adapt. And that's what sport's all about. Sport's about 
adapting uh, and being creative and being, you know, uh, prepared. And I think it's fantastic. So it, it, it gives everyone an opportunity to actually see who the best team is across all three formats. So, yeah, I, I love it. I think it's a great format. So that's Brad Hodge speaking to Kane Corns a little early today, trying to maybe implement the same system that the women's Ashes is, three T20s, one test and three ODIs. I wouldn't go that far, but is there something in what he's saying about, you know, three, three and three perhaps that England are out here all summer? Uh, and then what does that mean for Big Bash? And then you could roll into the women's series as well. Um, but we seem to have just struggling to find the right fit at the moment, aren't we? And I know COVID's playing a part, but we're struggling to find the right fit with tests, we used to have the tri-series, and now where does the Big Bash fit? Now we've got the women's um, format, which we should absolutely be getting behind now that it's fully professional. Something's just not quite working, and we've got to find the way to get it all to fit and make sure we maximise on what we do have rather than just try to cram in everything and oversaturate the cricket market. Um, one 736 I asked you before, did the Australian Open win you back um, after a pretty inglorious and controversial start? Um, after the way it finished, did you find yourself back in fully immersed uh, in tennis again? Adrian in Roeville. G'day, mate. Hey, how you going, mate? Yeah, good. I'll tell you what, Sammy, you've um, you've excited me here because I've almost lost my train of thought with the tennis because you started talking about cricket. And if there's one thing I love, it's cricket. Far away. Um, the, Australian, the Australian Open summer um, did win me back. I'm probably one of the three Novak Djokovic fans in Australia. I actually <laughs> love watching Novak play because he brought... Novak reminds me of Leighton at his finest. Um, when Leighton was at his best, he got balls back over the net. Novak does the same thing. He gets impossible balls back over the net. He's not glamorous. He's not flashy. Uh, we don't love him like we loved Rafa and uh, Roger. We didn't love Roger at the start either because he was betting Leighton. Um, but I quite enjoy Novak's work. So it was sad to see him not get across, but he does have to follow the laws of the land and deserve to not be here. So therefore, um, and look, the event put on what it was supposed to put on. It put on an elite tennis event. It was great to see Australians winning titles. Um, it was a send-off for Dylan that he probably deserved a bit better, but um, no, it was a great great summer of tennis, and the Australian Open um, certainly lived up to all its billing, with or without Novak. Um, as far as the cricket goes, I'd rather see T24 by the wayside before we start playing less test cricket, um, and I love Brad Hodge for that concept of uh, playing the women's Ashes style setup in Australia uh, for the men's cricket or in mm. England even um, doesn't fly with me. Test cricket um, and the Ashes, the pinnacle of it is five tests. You generally get a winner. You don't have too many uh, two and two or one and one ties. Um, and it's a war of attrition that's gone back for a very, very long time between Australia and England in cricket. Um, and I don't think it's something that we should be stepping away from. It's a very traditional game. We've modernised it enough, I think. Um, the 100 and the T10 are just ridiculous concepts. If you want to watch that sort of cricket, go down and support Go down and support your local indoor cricket centre and go and have a hit with the boys, play indoor and have a beer afterwards um, and support local cricket. And that's what Cricket Australia needs to do. Um, domestic cricket's falling apart because I remember when I was a kid, the mid-90s, the Mercantile Mutual Cup was the pinnacle. You'd stay home on a Sunday afternoon and a Sunday morning and watch Victoria you know, blast WA. You'd see Gillian... Um, Hussey, before they started playing Test and one-day yep. cricket for Australia, going one-on-one one on one with Damien Fleming and Brad Hodge and Merv Hughes, and um, it was brilliant to watch. Um, and Shield cricket meant something. We don't play enough Sheffield Shield cricket in mm. this country. We but don't have but enough. It, but it used to be prioritised too, Adrian. You wouldn't have Shield teams without you know, their best players unless there was actually a, a, a Test summer happening. But we're dragging people here, there, and everywhere around the world to play cricket at the moment. So T20 is not going to go. 
it, it's here to stay. And test has to be the pinnacle. It has to stay as what the, the for all intents and purposes the bastion of all things great about cricket. So the T Twenty should fund it. Test stay on top. Something just seems yeah. like it has to give. I agree with you, but I think that. I mean, we're seeing the problem in local cricket almost these mm. days, and I'm curious to see what's going to happen in, in club cricket um, when we go back to playing two-day cricket because there's still so much one-day cricket going around. If young kids are coming up and they're learning to chase dollars playing T20 cricket, where are you going to find your Will Pukowskis and these kids who can actually build an innings across four or five days? They, you see the guys who are coming in stop-gapping who are good T20 players, and England did it with a couple of players um, this summer who are T20 cricketers who, you know, David Milan and, and those guys are sensational team 20 players. They can't play test cricket. A, they can't play the moving mm. ball. B, they can't play a pitch with anything in it. And C, they don't have the discipline to build an innings that's going to stand up to four-day cricket. I miss watching Alistair Cook bore me to death for 200 <laughs> runs at the MCG over two days. I want to see a batsman... I want to see a batsman who can survive the hard stuff and then flourish yeah. in the end of the day. I want to see someone do yeah. that. I, I love Travis Head making 100 in the session at Queensland, but that's not test cricket. Mm. Travis Head's a short-format player. We need to really invest in getting guys playing four-day cricket, and I understand that you know the money talks and, and the sentiment walks at the end of the day, but we have to get more focus on... And even if we make it the elite pathway for juniors up to under-23s, Get these under-19s kids out of the World Cup and bring them over and make that um, that Sheffield Shield format something for them to look forward to. We need to develop longer format cricketers, or um, you know, the fear of Test cricket dying is is very real, and we don't want to see that. Um, and I think 50 overs guys still have to build an innings. There's you get the occasional flash in the pan where Rohit Sharma will come out and belt 200, but generally guys are scoring in a run of ball. They're not throwing the bat at it from ball one because they've got 20 overs and realistically on the law averages of 11 players only have to survive two overs each to last the innings. Um, you know, Maxie Belton 170 yep. or whatever it was is brilliant to watch, but you know, what does Maxie do when he plays test cricket? And don't get me wrong, he deserves another shot at it, but what's he done so far? He finds silly ways to go out trying to be a T20 cricketer in a five-day format. Adrian, you've given um, us a ton of food for thought there, mate, and I love it. Well considered, um, and I appreciate you ringing to share them. Thank you so much. We'll speak to you again soon. Cheers, Sammy. Look after yourself, mate. Yeah, good man. Uh, Adrian in Roeville. Justin in Coburg, your thoughts, mate? Hey, how are you, Sammy? Good, mate. What have you got for me? Um, I think there should be um, less rounds of the Big Bash and mm. more test cricket, especially for the women. Because I think that the way they've gone about it is, um, yes, they do have the ashes for the men, but they should have also more test cricket for the women because it's a um, it's a well-known sport that females and males can play instead of just having one series for the men, mm. like a five-day test series, and then have just a four-day test match for the women. I think there should be less big bash and more test cricket for the women. Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly on both those points, Justin. I thank you for ringing up uh, to make them. I'd love to see the women be able to play more tests, and they are screaming out for it. Uh, it was interesting, Kane Corn saying today, um, in regards to Meg Lanning's captaincy, that she's played about you know, 150 matches, but then Emma Race pointing out uh, to him that she actually only played four tests. So it's so that's a different it's a different feel and it's a different vibe to Test cricket. It was a, a point well made by her as well. So I'd love to see them playing more tests in, as part of this series and the format in which they play it. 
you know, maybe take a, a T20 out and take a, a one-dayer out and put another test in and play 2-2-2 two, two and two, um, just to, to start swinging the pendulum towards more test cricket. And I fully agree with you. BBL goes too long. I love it. I commentate it. I'm a massive fan. Uh, I want it to succeed. I want it to be the best it can be, but it does go too long. The players are telling us, and whilst we shouldn't have to listen to players maybe when it comes to who the coach should be, I think we should when it comes to how long that tournament should be. Uh, Pete Hawley's going to join us next. We'll talk some basketball with him, Joe Ingalls, uh, and then what's been happening in the NBL as well. Plenty to chat about uh, with Pete Hawley on the other side of this. There's a rebound the Jazz needed their 14th. Oh, Joe. No, oh, no, 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 no. I hope it's knee to knee and I hope it's nothing else. But Joe is uh, in pain. He's been so durable during his career. And you heard him yell too, man. This just brings heartache to me. And I know Jazz Nation to watch this. Uh, the crowd goes silent at Target Center. Jazz Nation, hold your breath. We'll take we'll, we'll take a time out and be back. You just hope for the best. But such a cog of what the Jazz are all about. One of the fan favorites. He's got the attitude, the grit, the grime. You know, he's just a guy that loves the game. Well, that was the devastating moment that Joe Ingalls uh, fell and the result of which has been that he will miss the, the rest of the NBA season. Severe damage uh, to his knee, required assistance to leave the 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 court and uh, was cheered on by the rival crowd, such as the respect that uh, the competition has for him. And the Australian basketball community, and by the looks of it, the American basketball community too, genuinely devastated uh, for one of the most popular players uh, that we've produced and certainly someone who is highly regarded uh, in the world of basketball. And Pete Hooley's been good enough to jump on the line to talk about that and all things basketball. Hello, old mate. G'day, mate. Good to talk to you. Uh, it's great to have you. This... Uh, I. Just gutted, personally, when I saw it. And that seems to be the feeling. We see this all, we see players injured all the time. But there are some players that when it happens to, it just hurts a little bit more, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, I was actually watching the game and straight away, when you just know it's a non-contact injury, and especially guys who you've seen potentially get injured before and and be so tough and you can just tell straight away that it's a serious one. Um, and just a guy, I mean, you talk about Australian basketball landscape over the last 10 years, and obviously Paddy Mills is number one, and then you, you, you're thinking Joe Ingalls. He's the one who's been alongside Paddy for the whole journey. He worked his way into where he got to in the NBA, and just a big credit to him. And anyone who knows him personally, he's just a phenomenal person as well. So, uh, yeah, really, really tough to see. Uh, really tough to obviously hear the confirmed news. I think we all probably knew when we first saw it. So... It's amazing that once that happens, I mean, we're still trying to get our heads around it and there's still so much to play out with his recovery and, you know, what that might mean for him. But given that the age that he is currently 34 years old, um, he's had an incredible NBA career. I mean, the Utah Jazz have been regular um, playoff participants. He's been an integral part of that. You hear when their superstar Donovan Mitchell talks about the impact that Joe Ingles has had on his career, you you heard about when every single one of the players was interviewed after how devastated they were. So he is absolutely beloved by the, that team, by that city, and certainly well-respected within the NBA that we're already asking the question, what next? Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing at, at Joe's age um, and, and just the way that Joe plays. I mean, Joe's never been the most explosive player. and he, He'll attest to that. He, he plays in a unique style. And, um, yeah, it, it's a big question that I'm sure... Uh, he doesn't even want to think about right now. He's just focusing on the surgery and then the rehab and then letting all that unfold. But I think what definitely is in his favour is the fact that of how good of a locker room guy he is. Um, 
Japan in terms of that leadership and uh, being able to shoot the ball the way he shoots the ball is something that when he comes back from this, he should hold him in some good stead to potentially the timing of it is, is obviously horrible. It's a contract year, but um, depending on what happens with, with Utah, if they just decide to bring him on for one more year and knowing he'll play the second half or he enters free agency when he's fully healthy and a contender picks him up, there's plenty of options left out there for him. Yeah, so there's just so many choices that, that this guy's going to have. And, and he's, he's you know, the city of Utah has fallen in love with him. He, in turn, loves them. And he has spoken about what the, the city and the franchise have done for him and his family, uh, with his children as well, the support that which they've given. It seems that it would be really, really hard for him to pick up and go somewhere else for, for a short time. Well, absolutely. I mean, before he even got hurt, there was a lot of whispers that potentially he was going to be traded before the NBA trade deadline, which would have been devastating for Utah, the fan base of how they've adopted Joe. I think uh, even probably the organisation, but when it comes down to, you know, it's a, it's a business and, and what has to be done. Uh, I'm not sure how far those talks progressed, but yeah, it would be, it would be interesting and, and tough for him to part ways with the Jazz. And I think everybody would love, even Utah Jazz teammates would love to see Utah pick him up on at least one year deal, knowing that he gets to do all his recovery and everything there and then come back halfway through the season and join the team and then obviously decide what happens from there. That would probably be the best case scenario. So then the question is about, well, what about the NBL? I mean, we've got a situation at the moment where Matthew Delavadova is here and and especially the last couple of games has really been stamping his authority on the league. Um, you've got Aaron Baines. We're not sure about what his future holds as he makes a return from one of the most frightening experiences that, that I can remember hearing that an athlete's gone through. And if you haven't read that story, if you're listening now, uh, jump on to ESPN, just Google Aaron Baines and just familiarise yourself with what he went through after the fall coming off the court uh, in Tokyo to, to what he's been through since and what he continues to have to battle on his road to recovery. But we could find a situation where some of our most beloved boomers uh, over the journey might all be in the NBL and there'd be no shortage of teams clamouring for all of them. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Um, yeah, obviously, Aaron Baines, just to see him sitting back courtside of the Bullets was an awesome thing after what he's been through. But, yeah, Ingles, I mean, I've spoken to Ingles along the journey. He used to work out with us in, at Melbourne United. And um, I think it's pretty safe to say that if, when he is ready to come back to the NBL, it's going to be either the two Melbourne teams. I can't really see him going anywhere else. And Adelaide fans won't like that, him being an Adelaide boy. But that's just where his home is when he comes to Australia. So I can't see him... Between United and the Phoenix, one of those two would be bidding pretty highly for a signature. And, I mean, how big would that be in terms of the league? I mean, obviously, it's a nine- to 12-month recovery for, for the knee injury that he's got. And then, hopefully, he can rehabilitate to the full extent. But just how big a, a coup would that be to a guy that's still averaging around eight points a game, around five assists a game? Yeah, his three-point percentage has dropped off ever so slightly this year, um, but he's still shooting at over 50% from the field. Um, how big a, a signing would that be for the NBL? Oh, I mean, it'd be massive. And I think it's um, it's not a, a matter of if he's going to come back. It's just a matter of when. He's always spoke about it. He always said he's going to finish his career in the NBL. There's no doubt about it. Um, but he's another one coming in. Uh, you look at Andrew Bogut after his NBA career is, I could see Joe Ingles being a potential owner of a team at some stage, um, whether that's an expansion team or a current team. That's just something I could see Ingles wanting to be part of. 
Um, but I think a lot of it, uh, for what he does, it's so family orientated that he knows the biggest influence he has is going to be probably past the basketball court with, with what he's doing for his family and there's some of the awareness and stuff that he's raising um, for autism and stuff, which is just great. Well, we're just fingers and toes and all things cross that he recovers well and then that whatever happens is that he gets to do it on his own terms because I think he's someone that uh, deserves to do that. I think he played 635 out of a possible 650 games uh, in his time in, in the NBA, which is just phenomenal. Um, the NBL season, obviously back in earnest and they're doing everything they can to make sure that games get played. And I reckon Larry um, and Jeremy would have been very, very happy, even with some controversy about the events of the weekend, because there was just action. There was just action everywhere. Perth flex and muscle over Illawarra. Tassie getting two wins in a row. 36 is beating Melbourne United. We've had a punch on Matt Hodgson, the brain explosion. It's had everything this round. It has. Uh, and I mean, if you if you cast your mind back to round three, I believe it was, before we had all the COVID interruptions, arguably probably the most jam-packed round uh, of NBL history in terms of we had three games on a Sunday that were just outrageous and the momentum was flying and then COVID hit and COVID hit some players pretty hard and trying to bounce back from that is always tough from all the reports we've heard. So just to get some games back and the quality of games back and all the storylines that are starting to come out, there's so much left of the season that... Uh, it's really setting up to be a blockbuster end. I think the top three or four teams are starting to separate a little bit from the pack, and uh, there's a big race on uh, to just keep in touch with the finals. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. Um, the Tassie two wins in a row and the emotion of Coach Scott Roth, uh, especially after the first one, and then to be able to get the job done in consecutive games, that's massive for them because if, you, if you're going to – if you get, you need – We've seen the South East Melbourne Phoenix do it. You have to have an impact straight away. You've got to be competitive straight away. And they've now been able to string together um, four wins on the season. Yeah, they have. Uh, you talk about having an impact straight away. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the ladder or the win the loss column. I think that's the most important thing about Tassie. And, and they know they've got a talent deficit on the rest of the team, that's, uh, the rest of the league. That's just what the team has been put together. And uh, the two wins have been massive, but it's the way they play. They can trouble a lot of teams get these wins by playing that tough, hard-nosed style of play uh, when they get up and in defensively and kind of build that culture. And, and any time you start a new franchise, it's about implementing a, a winning culture. It doesn't necessarily have to translate to wins immediately, but setting in stone from the jump what you're going to be about. I think Scott Roth's uh, enjoyment and energy post-game after that win uh, the other night was something that really sets it up, and, and the crowd love it. That's sort of the whole part about having a pro sport down in Tassie, they all get around it. And I can't wait to get down there, actually. From all reports, it's a, it's a really good, fun night out with the, the games right on the water there at the Derwent Entertainment Centre. Adelaide have done something that not many have been able to do to Melbourne United this year, and that's get a win uh, in overtime. Dusty Hannah's amazing. Mitch McCarron, pivotal as well. It's going to put a rocket up Melbourne United, you'd expect. And they're back at home this week uh, for the first time, I think, since mid-December. Um, look out, Tassie. Well, I mean, honestly, I can say from experience, there is no worse time to lose to a team that you should be beating when you have uh, a seven-day break coming up with Dean Vickerman. Uh, you get absolutely rocketed at practice, but he knows in the end uh, there is, is exactly the kind of the, the slap in the face they needed. They, they need to be playing their best basketball. Um, and they know Chris Golding was 0 of 16, which will never happen again in this lifetime and the next. So they know they missed a lot of shots. They still had opportunities to win the game. So... Definitely no, no, nothing to be really concerned about. Uh, but it's just a big win for Adelaide. I think they need to 
try and find some consistency as well. And what better way to try and start that than beating the reigning champs? What did you make of the two open hand slaps of Matt Hodgson to uh, DJ Vasiljevic? Um, obviously, we don't want to see unsavoury incidents in the game. What needs to happen? Oh, I think he's going to get uh, a nice little lengthy sit on the sideline. It's just not on. Um, and from all reports, it was just a complete brain fade. There was nothing really said. I don't think there's probably a couple things that could be actually said in that kind of moment that would warrant a reaction like that. And unfortunately, he went back to seconds, which was even sillier than the initial strike to the face. So, yeah, I would, I'm not sure how many games he'll get, but the Tribunal will have a look at that, and he'll be spending some time on the sideline. Uh, Pete Hawley, before we let you go, just a couple more from me. The um, report today, Matt Logue uh, has, is reporting that there are several NBA teams that have already been in contact with the NBL to try and organise pre-season games with, um, with NBL sides for next season. How big a show of respect uh, is that from, from these NBA teams to what's happening in the NBL? I mean, they've seen it when we, we played the preseason games already before the last two years of COVID ruined it. And yeah, there's been a couple of games that have been blown out, but I've just got to, you just got to cast your mind back to that game against OKC. I was sitting there, I broke my ankle the day before, but uh, we lost by one point against Westbrook, Camelo Anthony, Paul George, like a stacked Thunder outfit. So mm. the competition's there and you don't go over there really expecting to win. You go over there just to to showcase the NBL. And there's a reason the NBA is what it is. It's always going to be better and that level above. Otherwise, players wouldn't be here. But no, it just shows how, how big the league's gotten in such a quick, short period of time. And just to be able to have those games back will be awesome. I, I, I can't wait to see it. And I hope that a few teams get the chance to do it. And if it's multiple games again, then, then so be it. But I'm sure Larry and Jeremy and all that are trying to figure out the best way to go about it. Mate, always love catching up with you. You're doing a very, very good job uh, on the NBL broadcast. I've got to say, getting a lot of airtime, and rightly so, nailing it every time you do, looking very sharp as well. It's just all things coming up, Pete Hawley, and I love it. Oh, thanks, mate. I think I'll see you on the 13th of Feb if you're if you're around at John Kane Arena. Yeah, I'm, I think I can make time for you. <laughs> all right, well, I'll see you there. I uh, love your work, mate. Thanks for chatting. Thanks, mate. Have a good one. Former NBL champion Pete Hawley has uh, a ripping job uh, with the NBL broadcast as well uh, on the TV broadcast. Mel, uh, United Live, by the way, back in action this Sunday from John Kane Arena, 3 p.m., Melbourne United, Tassie Jack Jumpers. Can't wait to be calling United back at home uh, again. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. of course, the number to call uh, at any point uh, on the Sporting Capital. I want to turn our attention to a little bit of footy news that's getting around, some of the things that have been said throughout the course of the day that I'd love to get your thoughts on. We're going to hear... From Jordan Degoe's manager, um, Ryan Vague, who spoke to Dwayne Russell earlier on today. We'll hear from Adam Simpson as well about the Josh Darling situation that's unfolding. Uh, that's next on the Sporting Capital, SEN. I think it was extremely tough on, specifically like Jordan and his family, um, you know, as well documented, every single person probably in Victoria or even the country had a say on it. Um you know, with respect to the legal process, it needs to run its course and understand, um, you know, the media and, you know, even all your listeners, everyone's going to have a point of view. Um, but for three months of, um, you know, somewhat, you know, trial by media, respectfully, um, that was probably the hardest part for Jordan, his family, um, close friends and, and his supporters, um, you know, that probably know Jordan pretty well. So... Yeah, um, relief would be an understatement, but we're all about moving forward now, Dwayne, and Jordan's fo- focus is fully on the 2022 season. 
Welcome back to the Sporting Capital. Great to have your company. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. That's Ryan Vague, who's the manager of Jordan Degoe. Um, Jordan Degoe, as part of his agreement uh, in the culmination of his legal matters in the US, um, he pled guilty to a harassment charge in the second degree, considered a violation, not a crime. All the other charges were dropped. He consented to undergo 10 counselling sessions for alcohol treatment and anger management, in addition to club-imposed orders of working with the Salvation Army for those incidents that happened last year um, in New York. Um, thought it was a fascinating chat that Dwayne had with Ryan Vague, SEN.com.au if you wanted to hear the rest of it. But he went on to say what what will be in store for Jordan Ngoi moving forward from this situation? Jordan definitely understands the seriousness of the situation and he did from the start. Um, So he's extremely remorseful um, for putting himself in that situation and his actions and, you know, has apologised for that and did so with the courts on um, Saturday morning as well, um, virtually. I just think that now we've got some really good things in place at the club. Uh, he's got some great support around him um, from a professional sense um, to, to assist him. Uh, his friends network, um, you know, we've we've touched base with all of them and just kind of, um, you know, kind of linked a lot of the, the pieces together from club land, family, friends and those that can, um, you know, really uh, keep Jordan, you know, accountable for his actions and, and he wants to be the best version of himself too. So he went on to speak about what the best version of himself would be and, and, and that he has a desire to be the best player and best person he can be. And then Dwayne asked about what would be the likelihood of him uh, putting an alcohol ban on himself. It hasn't been something um, that at the moment we're looking at. Um, yeah, I know that like probably with the, the charges, there was a bit of alcohol um, and, and the anger stuff that comes with the sessions. Uh, for him to do so he'll undergo that education and he's um yeah very compliant and willing to do so he doesn't have an alcohol um problem you know or an alcohol uh sorry a anger management problem um but he's willing to undergo that education so this stage we don't see it something that you know we need to be on the record or jordan's doing a self-imposed alcohol ban but if the time comes that he believes that might be better for him um, he, he may do so, but at this stage, um, you know, from all the parties, we, we don't see that being an issue. So the other thing that uh, Dwayne asked was, how will this Jordan be different? And one of the things that Ryan Vagie's manager spoke about is, is the fact that he said that they've now got things set up, um, that, that there's a determination from Jordan alongside with uh, things that have been set up at the club level, which I found interesting because I, I was of the view that there'd been things set up for a fair while uh, at the club when it came to to Jordan to Goey, but it is the interesting conundrum, isn't it? I mean, 25 years of age, um, and I made this, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to play a chat that I had with Peter Johnston, uh, Kuyong director, um, a little earlier on this afternoon. Some of these guys that we are looking at here making the choices that they're making, 25 years of age, and I find myself wondering, you know, would I have been any better? Um, at 25 years of age. Am I any better now when it comes to choices I make if I've, you know, had too much to drink or whatever it might be? And and how quick are we too quick to say you've done your dash because it's because we would give anything to be in that situation or are we too lenient on professional athletes who, who make mistakes and make the wrong choice and, and do the wrong thing at times? And where's the balance lie? 
I think it is such a difficult question to answer. Some believe that it is absolutely black and white, that if you don't respect the position that you're in and that you don't appreciate that there's so many people that would kill to do what you do and all that kind of stuff, then if you, if you, if you stuff up, then you go. And others would say, you know what, it's a human being. And then maybe I don't know everything there is to know about what's going on for that person. I thought the alcohol stuff was interesting and something that looks like they're going to keep an eye on and, uh, and monitor. Um, so I, I'm really curious as to where, where it does sit for you and, and how, because if you take away, you know, and I know there's been things that Jordan Ngoi has, has done that, that, that are, that are, you know, that are not right. And, things that have happened and I've been uh, critical and I've even pointed to the fact that how long, how many chances do you give someone before you're actually starting to set a bad example to the younger players and, and all that kind of stuff. And I've got Jason who's just texting and said, people don't change. I wonder, I don't believe that to be true, but, but how many cho- chances should you get to be able to change given that we're all fallible, we're all human beings. We, we, we all might have the best of intentions, but the execution, um, whether it be via impairment or, or whatever it might be, that you find yourself there. And then I wonder what will be different for Jordan next time if confronted in that situation. You know, how will he act differently? And will he be in that a similar situation like that um, again? So I, I think you, you toss it around in any way, shape or form that you can. One of the hardest questions to answer in sport, I reckon. How many chances? And and should sport be viewed differently in the way that we make these decisions than on people, you know, in everyday life outside of sport? one three hundred seven three six seven three six. I don't think I've got the answer to it. Um, I wonder if you do. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Troy's giving us a call in WA. G'day, Troy. Sam Hart, How are you, young fella? <laughs> good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Hey, um, I'm being listening about this all day. I was on earlier on Dwayne's show about a different issue, but um, and I actually heard that interview Dwayne done with Jordan Dugowie's manager and like you just said in your little editorial, if that's what it was. Just amusing, really. Um, it was just, I was just pondering, pontificating. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I thought the structures would have already been in place, mm. like you said. Yep. And obviously, you know, they need another layer to put on top of that, just Jordan Bagoe. But for him to say um, that he doesn't have an anger management problem, I think that's a bit far-fetched and not in the real world, Sammy. Oh, but we, we now, can't, um, but, but we, Troy, we can't speculate on that because we, we'll get into no, legal okay. terrain that... That, yeah, that, that isn't right, right because we're not, we're not psychologists. We're not psychologists, so we don't know, and we haven't sat down and, and analysed him no. in that space. So it's not right for us no. to, to, right, to well, view there. I'll withdraw that comment, but <laughs> what I will say yep. is um, Collingwood, well, AFL clubs have structures. That's, that's fine yep. during the season and while we're there, but when they get out of them structures, these young fellas seem to think that, you know, they can't handle the real world and what the real world throws at them. Now, I'm not just saying Jordan Goey, There's other players as well mm. over here in the West, as you probably well know. But really, to wrap them, wrap them up in bubble wrap, you're not doing them any favours, Sam. Yeah. You know, yep. 
they've got a drinking issue, that is real life stuff. It's not just... Or if, if they um, do, yep. The AFL is only part of society. They're not an elite, you know, a part of... You know, all the problems that happen in general society happen in the AFL as well. And they should be treated the same. You know, yeah. wrapping these people, young fellows up in bubble wrap is not the way to go, mate. Uh, I appreciate the call as always, Troy. Have a great night, mate. Good on you, Sammy. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. 736 736 Damien in Frankston North. G'day, Damien. G'day, Sam. How are you? I'm good, thanks, mate. What have you got for me? Good. Just before I get to the Melbourne Stars season, I'm changing topic here. Sorry about that. That's okay. What have you got for me? Um, it was nice of my friend to get me in the MCC members for the Melbourne Derby. First time going in there. What a great, what a great facility that is in there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Absolutely great. Absolutely. First time going in there in, in the Derby, so it was nice. Um, want to chat about the Melbourne Stars season? Sure. Uh, a bit up and down, I thought. Um, you know, they obviously had COVID go through the whole team, but. I thought, you know, they rely on Maxwell a little bit too much, I thought, and obviously Clark coming in. But what are your thoughts on that, Sammy? Uh, yeah, it's interesting that uh, Glenn Maxwell made the second most runs for the tournament, yet had just three good games. Um, but the but his three good games were three of the best games that we saw an individual play with the bat in hand. Clark had four or five scores above 50 as a big tick. Stoinis had a quiet year. Zampa struggled a little bit. And I, I, I absolutely feel for the Melbourne Stars because – I don't feel that they should have been made to play in the circumstances that they were made to play. I think when you've got to take out 10 to 11 players because COVID has uh, wreaked havoc through your team, I reckon you should get a leave pass for that day and we'll try and find a way to reschedule it around that. I think that was, um, yeah, I just think that was a bridge too far to make them to have to cross. So they wouldn't want to have another bad season like that though. Um, I think they get a leave pass this year because of the effects that COVID had, but there were some games that they really should have won that they lost. So yeah, I, I... yeah, that's about where I sit when it comes to uh, the Melbourne Stars uh, on this season. But I appreciate your call as always, Damien. Uh, a couple of texts here in relation to Jordan Ngoi. And feel free to give us a call, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. 736 George Vogel is going to join me. Man, it's been covering the Cincinnati Bengals uh, over 33 years, since even before they last made a Super Bowl. Super Bowl. We're going to jo- uh, join him in the US uh, after 9 o'clock, and then Peter Johnston, the Kuyong tennis director, to join me as well. Sporting Capital, SEN. Uh, just some text to finish up this hour with, just in relation to Jordan Ngo. He played you a little bit about what his manager, Ryan Vague, had to say to Dwayne Russell earlier on. Today, uh, Jason, people don't change. Uh, Maria, off the text. So we should just, uh, we just, would I, why would I want to listen to the podcast? What I heard then from his manager was emotional, make me sick. I'd say he's wearing rose-coloured glasses. Um, Mark in uh, Wallen, uh, 25, I was in an army on combat deployments, making life-death decisions. Great point, Mark. Um, and, and I have nothing but the most enormous amount of respect for all our servicemen and women. It's such a different um, play. I would put what you do in a completely different category because it requires such, you know, a, 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 a point of discipline and commitment and, uh, and 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 thinking that that I don't think is comparable to to the real world. Um, it, I, I put it, above, I put it in its own very special category. But I, I appreciate what you're saying and it's a, a point well made. And I hope that I've conveyed what I was trying to say with the right amount of respect. Um, 
this isn't just an AFL problem. You need to see what's happening with Mason Greenwood from Man United. I'm not across that story, but but I'll, I'll get a look at it. And Jason says, your question, which was how many chances is, is too many and um, are we too quick to condemn or do we need to be more empathetic, compassionate? Um, wh- what is the right answer? I don't have it. Jason said, your question should be clearly outlined in policy. Again, AFL. Um, that's a good point too, Jason. Hey, uh, in the next hour, we're going to turn our attention to uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, Cincinnati Bengals in it for the first time in 33 years. We'll chat to George Vogel over there on the other side of this. Uh, big final hour to spend with you. George Vogel to join me in just a moment. But in case you're wanting to know the scores uh, of the Western Bulldogs Frio game at uh, Witten Oval tonight, uh, this was the game ceiling moment from Ebony Antonio. The kick comes in on oh, dropping it right at the last minute was Antonio. Well played by Hartwick. Hartwick goes to ground. That was a mistake. Antonio in the pocket. She can do anything, Ebony Antonio. From the impossible angle, she's a genius. So she gave them a seven-point buffer with that goal in the right forward pocket at Witten Oval, and uh, that was enough for them to be able to hang on. The dogs kicked another point, but... Frio now undefeated 5-0 and to start this um, AFLW campaign and uh, away from home as well. They are flying. Um, a pretty quick turnaround from the game that they uh, beat Collingwood uh, pretty convincingly to, uh, in two and not only a few days ago. Uh, we're going to be joined by Peter Johnston. If uh, we have time, I recorded that chat uh, a little earlier. Um, just another thing that was making news from a footy point of view today, before I get to that, um, the COVID situation where the AFL requiring all players to be double vaccinated. Um, we've already seen Liam Jones from the Carlton Footy Club retire, not wanting to get vaccinated. We've seen Cam um, Ellis Yolman do the same thing from the Brisbane Lions. Uh, Jed Anderson is hesitant to get his second uh, dose of vaccine after having a, a, an adverse reaction to the first. Uh, and Jock's, uh, Jack Darling's situation continues to play out in the West. Um, he believes that there is a medical a medical reason as to why, from what we're led to believe from reports, a medical reason as to why um, he's reticent to get vaccinated. Adam Simpson, the coach of the West Coast Eagles, spoke about that today. Oh, I hope so, yeah. Um, obviously, and the situation most people know. So um, I'm hoping they can work through it. I mean, it, as a coach, we're, we're a player down. So um, he's a pretty important player. So, yeah, I hope, hope it gets worked out. Yeah, I was texting him a couple of times. Um, but, you know, there's not much we can do at the moment. So it's probably between Jack and the club to work through. And obviously, um, you know, the mandate's in place. So it's, it's out, of, out of my hands personally. Look, it's a really complicated situation, isn't it? Uh, there's, there's obviously the mandate and the the rules in place through the government and then there's what Jack's working through so I think it's a little bit unfair to talk through his personal situation from a medical point of view but the rules are the rules in terms of you you, you can't train or work if you're not vaccinated so um, like I said they need to work through that with the club and I'm sure they will. Uh, their hands are tied Duff you know there's not much we can do so um, like I said I think it's between Jack and the club and what they need to, to work through it's it's really um yeah, hands are tied a little bit. Adam Simpson, and I'm not trying to read into something that isn't there, but you can get just the little sense of frustration uh, about it um, and the situation that is unfolding there. He's such a pivotal part uh, of any chance that they have of playing finals this year. I reckon tomorrow night I'm going to give my list of who I think is the most fascinating player, recruit, coach and team that I'm just intrigued by 
the most going into this season. We'll do that tomorrow night. Um, but first, uh, let's turn our attention to some NFL. All right, do it again. Here we go. This could be a sentence that a month ago would sound incomprehensible. From 31 yards, McPherson and Cincinnati is heading to the Super Bowl. He called it again, I'm sure. He walked up and he goes, can you believe, coach? We're going to the Super Bowl. And they did it. They beat Mahomes at home. Wow, Joe Burrow. No way. Well, that was the moment. And don't we love those moments when you find out that your team is into its first championship grand final, whatever you want to call it. In this case, it's a Super Bowl. The first time the Bengals have been in a Super Bowl for 33 years. It's just their third Super Bowl appearance in their 55 years. 1967, they came into fruition. And to tell us what that means and to tell us how the people of Cincinnati are handling this incredibly exciting news and that performance in knocking out the number one seed in the Kansas City Chiefs at home, just remarkable. And uh, a man who's covered the Cincinnati Bengals for a very long time. He's a sports anchor and reporter with WLWT5, the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati. George Vogel, one of the most experienced uh, broadcasters and voices in Cincinnati sports, been good enough to jump on the phone with us. George, hello. Hello, how you doing? All that stuff just means I'm old, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't want to say you'd been covering the Bengals since their inception. (laughs) Well, close enough. I did did cover the previous Super Bowl 33 years ago. So, yeah, I've been around. So what does it mean? And when you hear that moment where you hear that it's finally happening for the first time in 33 years, what does it mean to you? in this team that you've followed for such a long time and reported on and you know so intimately, and for the people of Cincinnati? Yeah, it's something you thought would never happen again because in the 80s they went twice and things seemed to be somewhat normal with the Bengals like other franchises that went every now and again. No one saw this 33-year drought coming. Uh, They went 31 years without even winning a playoff game. So it's been a total famine when it comes to football in Cincinnati at the NFL level. And when that happened, when they won, when Evan McPherson kicked that field goal, it was more than a sigh of relief. It was jubilation. I mean, every bar in Cincinnati, the roof came off with people screaming and jumping on tables and throwing beers on each other. And some people even cried there. There's so many fans of the Bengals who have never seen them succeed, never seen them win a playoff game. And for this to happen, uh, it's a moment they thought they would never see. George, this last 12 months has been another one of the years, sort of like 2016, where it's the drought breaker year. We saw 12 months ago, Tampa Bay, and then the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA, first time in 50 years. Over in Australia, we've had the Melbourne Demons in Aussie Rules football win for the first time in 64 years. The Penrith Panthers in our National Rugby League uh, break a a long-held drought. And it just seems to be happening again in this last 12 months. How much hope... Is there in, in, in Cincinnati that this could be the year to get your first ever? There's first ever, yeah. The franchise first year was 1968. Um, that was their first season, and this would be the first one ever in that long time. And people think they've got a pretty good shot here. I mean, they were an underdog on the road uh, at Tennessee. They were an underdog on the road 
at Kansas City down 18 points in the first half and came back to win. So people feel really good about their chances against the Rams, and I have to agree with them. This team has been so resilient. It doesn't matter what kind of hole they get in in a game. They find a way to get out of it. And if they don't win the game, they're at least right there at the end where they have a chance to win. And uh, they're clicking right now. Their defense is playing much better. Uh, I I think their chances are really, really good of grabbing that Lombardi trophy. And, you know, you want to make it happen now. You want to do it now while the chance is right there, and it's a very good chance for them to do it. But there's also the feeling that this team is so young at all the critical positions that they're going to be back in this position time and again here in the next several years. There's a real belief that this is not just a one-shot deal for the Bengals. Speaking of George Vogel, much respected and longtime sports anchor reporter for WWT5, the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati. George, how does a team in such a short amount of, short amount of time, with all due respect, go from being a punchline to a potential champion? How has this happened? Yeah. It, it, it's amazing. And they've, they've had so many uh, under-the-radar signings and free agency where it's like, okay, that guy's pretty good. And, and but you know he's not a world beater that's going to turn a franchise around. So there's two things. They were very shrewd in in signing these free agents that fit the things they want to do, not just on the field but in the locker room. Team guys who were you know team captains in college. They they were looking for leaders, and they brought in a bunch of leaders. They were able to get their hands on them. And then of course there's the quarterback Joe Burrow who has meant the world to this franchise. He, when when healthy, and last year he had that horrific injury, but up until that time, he had this team thinking they could win any game they were in because he makes plays. He's a difference maker, and somehow he shook off that injury in a short amount of time, was able to start the beginning of the season this year, and was just terrific all season long. And it seems like the tighter the game, the bigger the moment, the better that guy plays. It's remarkable. And, and he's been a really, really big part of this. And then I don't want to leave out the head coach, Zach Taylor. The poor guy was almost run out of town after last season. He only had six wins in two years. But he instilled a belief in these guys that it can happen here. You guys are leaders. You guys are in charge of the team. You're in charge of the locker room. It's your responsibility. And they took it and ran with it. And here they are. It worked. I want to talk a little bit more about Joe Burrow in just a moment, but it it seems to me when you talk about the recruiting, we've seen this starting to happen in our professional codes at the moment where teams, especially teams that aren't in what we would call the nucleus of Aussie rules footy in Victoria, they recruit players that have known each other growing up, that they came through the under-18 mm-hmm. system and they bring them out of their state and to another state, but with friends or, or or brothers or whatever it might be. That's exactly what Cincinnati have done. They they raided LSU uh, in the draft. And that yep. photo of um, Joe Burrows being shouldered off the ground after the uh, the championship yep. win by Tyler uh, Sher- uh, Tyler uh, Sher- uh, Chevron, I think it is. And then Jamar Shelvin, Ch- yeah, yeah, Shelvin sorry. Shelvin, and, yeah. and Jamar Chase, his wide receiver from LSU. That's really, really smart yep. recruiting. It it was really interesting because there was a big debate, uh, especially after Burrow was injured last year. They need offensive linemen, and they've needed them for years to to protect the quarterback. And, you know, a lot of things start with offensive line in in American football in the NFL. Um, There was a really good one available when Jamar Chase was there in the draft. And the Bengals felt like, number one, Jamar Chase was such a talent that they couldn't pass on him. And number two, 
he already had that chemistry from LSU with Joe Burrow, and it was just like plug and play. I mean, that kid could just walk in, and Joe Burrow knew exactly what he was all about. Uh, they're on the same page constantly. And I was skeptical that that, that was going to work as well as it did early on. And boy, oh boy, did it ever. I mean, you know, Jamar Chase had one of the greatest uh, rookie years any wide receivers ever had in the NFL. So they've, they've done some smart things and, and done some things that I weren't sure were going to work out, but they knew better than I this time. George, talk to us about football in Ohio. I've read that Ohio um, is almost the birthplace of professional American football, yet yeah. the Browns and the Bengals for such a long time have been considered just a hot mess, a dumpster fire. And that yeah. must really hurt the people of Ohio. That must really hurt the people of Ohio because it's such a proud and, and, and rich and long-held belief and tradition. Just talk to us about the, the place of football in Ohio. There, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it is, it's a football hotbed here in the United States, and it's the high school football here is very, very good. Um, you know, you've got California, which is a big state, Texas, a big state, Florida's loaded in high school football, and then Ohio's right in line with that, right behind. I mean, our high school programs in football are so sophisticated now. Uh, they're, they're up to the level that what some colleges would have been, you know, 30 years ago. It's, it's crazy how football nuts this area is and then you've got Ohio State that's been successful at the collegiate level and now the University of Cincinnati has stepped up and, and they've been very successful people love their football in Ohio it's it's and as you say the Pro Football Hall of Fame is here in Ohio uh, Canton and that area is, is you know believed to be the birthplace of professional football and it's just it was all over the state we had several in the old NFL, several NFL franchises in this state in places like Portsmouth and Canton and Akron and Ironton and just places like that where, you know, you don't you would never see it today. But that's where the birth was. That's what it grew out of. And people still have that instilled in them. And and that's, you know, part of the reason the celebration was what it was the other night when the Bengals broke through is They've been waiting for this. They've been starving for this. They've been, you know, looking for something to grab a hold of and have pride in, and, and this year's Bengals team finally did that. We're speaking to George Vogel, sports anchor, reporter, uh, long-time WLWT5, the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati. Uh, how intense is the rivalry between the Bengals and the Browns, and how good and how sweet a feeling is it for Bengals fans to be able to hold this over uh, their Browns uh, contemporaries? Well, there's no doubt it's sweet for Bengals fans because, <laughs> you know, let's face it, the Browns have had plenty to laugh about, even though they've had their own issues. As you said, they, they were as much of a hot mess as the Bengals were, but they at least, had, you know, tasted a little bit of success. And then they've got certainly the, the longtime history to draw upon where they had a lot of good teams. But, yeah, this has been big. And that, that is a great rivalry more recently the better rivalry has been with Pittsburgh and the mm. same way with the Browns. They're right because Pittsburgh's been so darn good. You know, they've won a couple Super Bowls, you know, since the, the turn of uh, the year 2000 and, and they had a lot of success over the years, making the playoffs and dominating the division. Um, that's probably been the hotter rivalry is Brown Steelers, Bengals Steelers. But when both teams are, you know, 
fairly good, and the Browns and the Bengals hook up, yeah, it, it can get nasty. It, it, it doesn't take long to rekindle that fire. You were talking about Joe Burrow before. This guy just fascinates me. Um, he, he His final year of college is, is an all-timer because he was a Heisman, but he had struggled to really get going in college football, just as he sort of did in high school football, which there's a little bit of Brady uh, about that. But uh, looking at some of the numbers around him, just the second, uh, there's only a handful of second-year QBs to have reached the Super Bowl. Russell Wilson, Ben Roethlisberger, yep. Tom Brady, Kurt Warner, Dan Marino, and Colin Kaepernick. Only two QBs have beaten the Chiefs and Mahomes at home in the playoffs and the other one's Tom Brady and no QB has ever won the Heisman and National College title and a Super Bowl in just his second year this guy is amazing what's he actually like as a human being you would have interviewed him countless times he is the son of a coach his father is a defensive coordinator at the collegiate level or was until he retired a year ago to watch Joe in his career um Son of a coach, so he's got that. His older brothers played football and, and played at the collegiate level, so he's got a lot of that. He's grounded. He's very grounded. Nothing's too big for him. He thinks like a coach. Uh, he carries himself like a coach, and and he really is a very humble person. His, his mom's a school teacher. Uh, they've done a great job with this young man. Great job. But all that being said, there is also this other element of him. That's a little cocky, a little, <laughs> I can do this and you can't stop me. And you have to have that to mm. be successful as a quarterback in the NFL. And he's got that too. He will trash talk you. He will let you know he got you. Uh, he will let you know you can't stop him. He's a, he's a competitive dude. He is very competitive. Um, and But at the same time, he is grounded. He's very respectful in interviews, very respectful with any uh, other you know, interactions he has with people. He's, he's just a good kid. And, and it, sometimes you sit here and you look and you watch this guy and you realize his age and you're like, this is too good to be true. I, I'm still waiting for some shoe to drop that is like this guy isn't, you know, Superman. Like, like he's kind of come in Cincinnati and become here in two years. And he's always been that way, even in high school. And he grew up in Ohio, Athens, Ohio, which is, what about two and a half, three hours from Cincinnati, and he uh, he he was just always that guy that other people kind of gravitated to. Even though he wasn't an outgoing personality in high school, people gravitated to his leadership skills and just his his. Uh, they call him Joe Cool. I mean, he's just got this coolness about him that nothing rattles him, and that's how it's been in the NFL. It's been remarkable to watch. So how does it unfold, do you think, in a couple of weeks' time, George? You're coming up against the L.A. Rams, who amazingly started as the Cleveland Rams back in 1936. So there's an Ohio connection there. They haven't won since they were at St. Louis in 99. They're back in L.A. now. You've got all the stories around OBJ, and you've got Matt Stafford, which is a great story. You've got the two youngest coaches that have ever gone head-to-head in a Super Bowl game. So there's plenty to get sentimental about for L.A., so how does it play out? How do Cincinnati make sure they capture something that's eluded them for so long? Yeah, they just have to stick with the plan they've had in the playoffs, and that is don't make it bigger than it is, even though this is the biggest one of all. Uh, the coaching staff's done a good job having these guys stay in their routine. And it's like, okay, we did this in week seven of the regular season. We still do that leading up to the Super Bowl. This is how we're going to approach practice. This is the days we're going to practice. This is how long we're going to practice. This is when we watch the film. 
uh, they keep everything the same and try to keep it, you know, like just another game. And the Bengals just have to go out there and 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 I think they'll I think they're going to put up a good fight. I think we're going to see a heck of a Super Bowl. There's you know the Rams are loaded. They they've got good players. Cooper Cup is unbelievable. As you mentioned, Matthew Stafford had a great year. Um, you know they've got great defensive players. Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey come to mind immediately. Yep. Um, they they're they're loaded. So it's it's going to be a tough battle. But I will say this: anyone that can go to Kansas City. And that crowd against Patrick Mahomes and that team and be down 18 points in the first half and find a way to come back and win, they can beat the Rams too. So I expect the Bengals to be right there. Could be Evan McPherson with another field goal. Who knows? He's, he's 12 for 12 in the playoffs. Hasn't missed one yet. Uh, it's got all the hallmarks of a, a real shootout, doesn't it? Two young offensive coaches, two, um, you know, two quarterbacks with big arms and big talent. You know, you mentioned yep. Jalen Ramsey versus Jamar Chase is going to be amazing. And Aaron Donald is going to put all the pressure on uh, when it comes to Joe Burrow. And it's got so many tantalizing uh, aspects to it. George, we'll, we'll chat to you after uh, good, bad or otherwise. But thanks so much for giving us some time tonight and just teaching us a little bit about what this means to the people of Cincinnati and Ohio. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And I hope all the good folks down under enjoy the game. George Vogel, a long time anchor and reporter on Cincinnati TV, the NBC affiliate there. And uh, he was a joy to chat to and hope you enjoyed that as well. Can't wait for that Super Bowl. And you'll hear that right here on SEN. Jerry Waitley, of course, has been dominating that call every year and we'll do so again this year in a couple of weeks time uh, we're going to talk some more tennis on the other side of this Peter Johnson the Kuyong tennis director will give us his thoughts on an extraordinary Australian Open well Australian Open been run and won and I can't for the life of me think of another Australian Open that's had every single facet of every single type of storyline, whether it be controversy or triumph or whatever it might be, from commiserations to celebrations to elation to to every single emotion. We've run the gamut of every single feeling and, and, and I think there's only one man I could think to speak to about this and he's a tournament director himself uh, does a magnificent job of Kuyong every year that that's in operation but Peter Johnson's been good enough to give us some time g'day to you Pete hey Sam and I think you summed it up perfectly like it's so hard to get your head around all that's happened in the last month and um, you know so many storylines like you said and uh, look what what a final weekend we had ultimately didn't we just with, like you think of the you know, something for everybody, really. The Barty story, the Kyrgios Kokonakis situation or, or, or story. Then you've got Rafa, you've got Medvedev. I mean, it was just <laughs> it's mind-blowing, really. Uh, so I think we're going to have to touch on all those. But I, I, I was starting to think today when I thought I knew I was going to have a chat to you. And in my head, I'm, I, I, the question I wanted to ask you was if you were sitting with your team today and this had all taken place at Kuyong and you have to appraise how the tournament's gone... What are you giving yourself? How do you how do you judge the success <laughs> given where where this tournament started with with controversy, COVID, Novak, um, everything that came with that? There, there's there's everything that's gone on during it, whether it be you know from Peng Shui, and then you get all the celebration like you know Ash Barty and and, and Dylan, and and then what was going on with Kyrgios and Kokonakis, and it's mind boggling to think of. The, the roller coaster this has been. How would you have rated this if it was your tournament, your team? Well, ultimately, it's hard to just like 
segment it because of all the different dimensions you said. And and look, I think ultimately, and this is where I think the taste that's left with everybody. Let's say if Chris, uh, when you look at the stakeholders that are involved, like if you look at what Channel Nine must be thinking. I mean, they've had a month of just glorious. You know, it didn't matter what. Okay, the good, the good, the bad, and everything. But it's rated its head off over the whole of January. It's been front page, centre page, back page of every newspaper. <laughs> it's social media dominating globally. The the impact again, the good and the bad. But it, it, from a perception point of view and, and a global awareness point of view, it's just been off the charts. So then. You start saying, well, who's happy about that? Well, obviously, the, the media is happy. I think brought, um, the sponsors, if you, you obviously, weather the storm of some negativity, but ultimately would think, well, what? Look at, they look at the metrics of the exposure they got and they go, well, they're so happy. And, the, the, you know, so I, I think ultimately, and you look at also what the team has done to put the show on in January, and it's not just the Open, but it was all those lead-up events. And then all the, then you look at the, What's Tennis Australia have to do? It has to look after Australian tennis. So has that made a massive impact on, you know, a massive advertising campaign for the sport? Yes, it has. So there's so many positive elements to take out of it. And then, but then you have to have the critical analysis of, well, okay, what could have we done different on the Novak situation? Mm. Particularly, I mean, that really did dominate. Like I've never seen before, Sam, in a story, in a tennis story. I was trying to think actually myself, you know, maybe when Monica Seles, had a had a tragic uh, situation in uh, Stuttgart years yeah. ago, or but, you know that that was something that was sort of you know still resonates to today. But the story of Novak and it's going to continue too. It's just going to everyone's going to remember the Australian Open and the Novak situation. So you've got to balance that in and and really dissect that. How did we handle it? What should we do from here? All of that. But you know, again, so much to analyse in, in in all of it. It's it's. Uh, it's hard to give it one rating. It is. And, Pete, do you do you think that it won back the people, given that there was real resentment to, to what people believe had gone on and was happening behind closed doors with a, with a really strong push from Tennis Australia and, and, then, and, and, the, and, the, and the finger point at, at all four parties, the federal government, the state government, Novak himself and Tennis Australia to try and manufacture what was, was happening and then the way that it all played out. There was general, genuine resentment towards the tournament for that. And, and do you feel like it won the people back in the way that it was able to finish with what happened with Dylan Alcott? Then you've got Ash Barty, you know, doing something that we haven't seen for 44 years uh, from the women and then since um, Cashy in uh, 86 uh, for the men. And then with what, you know, Kyrgios and Kokonakis were able to do to bring a new set of fans, whether you loved it or hated it, uh, to the table. And then Rafa to do what Rafa did. Do, do you feel like it won back the people? Well, Sam, I think with all the things you just listed, what did win back the people is the sport, which the, the game itself. Yeah, yep. the, the, and, and, you know, I think the and rightly, the, the Australian Open has branched into all different dimensions over the last numbers of years in terms of on-site, the, the, the experience and everything like that. Um, but it was sometimes you could also go to the tennis and be like when you go to the Melbourne Cup and you don't see a horse race, you know, you're doing all the other stuff. Mm. Tennis could be like that. But what you focused on there, it was just an incredible victory for the sport itself. It was also, you see so many little sub-debates going on. You see five sets versus three sets. It, it, it's almost like Sunday night just and, and a couple of those men's matches just cemented five-set tennis as being massively important. Then you've got... Um, 
tennis for all different audiences where the audience that's watching Kokonakis and Kyrgios and the days that I was there and it was where there wasn't that many people sometimes in the grounds, but you saw the lineup for those, for the matches that those guys had and they were young people and they were a different audience, but it was a new audience and it was a great audience and a new dimension for the tennis. And then there's Dylan Alcott and everything he brings another dimension again. And then that's before I even get to talk about Ash Barty, who's, you know, is, is that the most pure uh, sports person, like most loved that you could ever see, you could ever possibly hope for, who plays a brand of tennis that you love? And then you've got Rafa and, and the drama of that. And even, you know, Medvedev, I love Medvedev actually. And, and he was cast as the villain, um, obviously. But that also brought out another dimension in the whole drama of the final and the other matches. So, all of those, I think, just showed tennis as the hero, and and also, and I think that's what that's the comfort that the sport can take out of it. There, there is always heroes and villains. I do a segment called Heroes and Villains about sport, and he was that, wasn't he? And some of it was from his own making. I mean, he, you know, the the interaction with the ball uh, kids, and then the way that he spoke to the chair was was the height of, of disrespect, and in some of those instances, but. When he when he un, really when he sort of unravelled not unravelled but really bared his soul after he lost uh, being two sets up to Rava and talked about the dream of the child in him dying that that I really felt for him in that moment I had cast him as the villain as well and I was cheering for Rafa but when I heard him speak about that that really hit a nerve with me because at the end of the day, this is a 25 year old young, a young man who's 25 years of age. And we often expect that tennis players are going to have all the or any athlete always has all the right answers, always should be saying the right thing and doing the right thing and being in control of their emotions in a way that we don't expect from people twice their age who aren't athletes. But 25 years of age talking about the child and him dying, my heart broke for him. Yeah. And Sam, look, I've dealt with him a bit over the last years and I can tell you as a guy and as a, He's he's dry, (laughs) but he's he's very attentive. Like Mm. um, sponsor appearances, everything like that. As a as a player, he trains so hard. I mean, you think he's a big, tall guy, and the balls that he runs down, and and just the relentlessness and and his, you know, his commitment to matches. You think of the match when he's down against uh, Felix. He's down two sets of love, finds a way. You know, just a a machine like competitor, and I, I think. You know, he, he he deserves so much. And as you, you said, you think of the drama. Like, he's led two sets to love. He's won the US Open. He's led two sets to love, three to love 40 on Rafa's serve. And looking like, if he breaks there, he's serving at 4-2, serving out of a mountain, and he could run it out in three. So he had to deal with that. And also, the relentlessness of the crowd, which was, was okay. That's fine, because it, these guys ignited the crowd. But the partisanship for... Rafa, you know, going for the, you know, he's he's earned that over the years, but that's got to, it's got to get under your skin a little bit when you you're playing your seventh match in two weeks, and you know, there's a lot to deal with when you're 25 years old, like you said. Hey, Pete, stay right there. More with Peter Johnson on the other side of this as we just try and make sense. <laughs> One of the most remarkable Australian Opens in living memory. That's more Pete Johnson on the Sporting Capital after this. I lot this one off the text. Don't mistake the people's appreciation for the players' efforts with their feelings towards Craig Tiley and co. Appreciate that uh, number ending in 600 433 The temper text, temper a mattress like no other. Continuing on uh, our chat about the Australian Open and just what we make of it all 
after an extraordinary couple of weeks and in the lead up to, and Peter Johnson's the director of the, the Kuyong uh, tennis tournament. He's been good enough to stay with us and keep chatting to us. When it comes to Kyrgios and Kokonakis, I was one who against, because I'm 41, so I've, I've seen the evolutions of tennis over the years and I, I found myself thinking, this is pretty incredible what we're seeing here. And, and there's parts of it that I go, oh, I'm not quite sure about that. But I think overall I go, this is something pretty incredible happening. And I, and I think it's actually, for the most part, pretty great for, for tennis. It's something new. It's something different. It, does it disappoint you after all the, the, a lot of good? And there's some that people, traditionalists, don't like, and I'd love to get your view on it. After all the good and to win it the way they did, and it was four Aussies in a final, which was fantastic, to go out on the note that he did, I just went, oh, Nick. And again, 26 years of age, he doesn't have it all figured out yet, despite the fact that he thinks he does. But to go out with seemingly dis... And he denies it, but it, it, it came across as disrespectful to Ash Barty. Then to slam Max Purcell the way... Do you sometimes just want to give him a shake and go, you've just done so much that's good. How come you couldn't just maybe just ease your way out with a bit of humility? Or are we expecting well, too much? Well, Sam, overall, I think the reason... And I'd put him in the top four to five draw cards in global tennis, not yep. just not just in Australia. So, And, and I'm in, sort of in the promoter business. And he's yeah. first picked for me almost, you know, anywhere. And, and he's going to sell you tickets. And the reason he does is because there's a lot of dimensions to him. And sometimes he might shoot the mouth off a bit and sometimes he goes a bit far. And, and I think his heart is ultimately there but yep. he, he's certainly unfiltered and but the brand of tennis he plays is incredible and what he and Kokonakis did I thought was just extraordinary and, and showed what good players they are by the way and also um you know I was watching I watched all the matches and I'm thinking these guys are darn hard to beat yep. because they are they, they are such a package because he gets up there he's got probably if he hasn't got the best serve in the world it's in the top three and Kokonakis is playing chock full of confidence so he between the two of them they they, they just were um I, I don't know, they, they were certainly it's incredible how they went through the tournament you know virtually untroubled <laughs> i mean that was amazing but i think with back to what you said sam i think you've got to take i think overall curious he, he's actually got a, a, a pretty good heart there and i think you, you just take it all where sometimes he's <laughs> he might disappoint you sometimes. He doesn't. Mm. I'll give you one little example. One little example. Yeah. He came down to Kuyong a couple of years ago. Um, we had him playing Bernie Tomic, and that was all set up. And he walked in, and um, he, I introduced him to the president of the club, Peter Carew, and Chris Brown as the CEO. And, and, and he said, excuse me, do, do you mind if I, would I be able to go on the grass, just try the grass? And they... They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, Look, I, I haven't got the right shoes. He goes, oh, come on, you know, the guys, of course. But I thought, gee, you, you know, he's got a, he's got a, he's got respect. He's got, he, 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 he gets it. He mm. gets it. You know, and, and I think you just got to, you got to ride with it, basically. No, yeah. and, uh, I, I, I feel you on that. I do feel you on that because I I get frustrated like everybody else and I want more like everybody else. But then I think, did I have it all figured out? At 20, it doesn't matter what you're doing in life. I think that at 26, I didn't. I don't have it figured out now, and I'm 41. So I, it, it's been something that I've been stewing over all through this tournament, watching it play out. And then with these comments the other day, and I just slapped my forehead and go, oh, there we go again. But I think 
I'll, I'll check back in with him in 10 years and just see what's mm. happened since. Um, mm. A couple more just to finish up on Pete Johnson, tournament director Kuyong, just trying to make sense of what we saw in Australian Open unlike <laughs> any other. How far away are we, do you think? And this is not a, a – again, I hope this comes across the right way because I love what the sport has done, trailblazing, in fact, in, in putting equal pay for men and women. And, and if you want to get finicky about it, it, it's actually more pay for women, which is a wonderful thing because I'm of the belief you build it, they will come. It will only make the sport better when these things – a quantum leap is made in that space. How far away are we, though, from the potential of, at these Grand Slams, women playing in the five-setters? Well, Sam, I've, here's my take on it. And I, I saw it in a couple of articles today even and um, mm. suggesting it. The women don't want it. The women don't need it. And, and, and it's better for the women to have the three sets because you think of the schedule on how it works in terms of getting them on the main courts. And you, you saw how it played out over the last two weeks. The women, you can't fit two men's best of fives in a day session. And you can't fit two in the night session. So the women will always get two days, two matches in, out of three in the day session right. on the main courts because they're playing best of three. And they'll always get one out of two in the night. And most likely they get the first one at night because the, the worry is that the first match, if you play a men's five-setter, the women don't get on till midnight. And that happened one time this week where um, I think Sabalenka and someone else weren't going to go on till about quarter past 12 because they were scheduled second at night. So... What I'm saying is it works so well from a showcasing point of view yeah, for women yep. to, be, to be three. And, and, and that's gold. And I think that's one thing that sort of gets, uh, you know, it, it, people go five sets, five sets. Well, actually, if you drill a little deeper, the girls have got it better going three. And the, also, I always think the slams, it's the sum of the parts. And the, the women bring, it's one plus one equals a hundred, in my opinion. Like yeah. it's men and women together, you know. And, and what a great schedule when you're able to get the three-set women's and the five-set men's and a mixture of both every day and on the same on outside courts, to me, that's perfect showcasing for both both, both sexes. No, it's a great answer. And it's a, 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 I hadn't thought about it from that perspective and I, and I greatly appreciate it. A curly one to finish, and I understand that, that, that not an easy one to answer, but I think it's, it's, it's going to be a question that's asked in the wash-up. If, if, if you were to hazard a guess, does Craig Tiley survive what's going on? Well, well, I think look, I, I think he was obligated to try as a tournament director. You're trying to get everyone there, and I think he really the, the, the moment that changed things for everyone was it was going this Novak um, policy. Oh, sorry, double, <laughs> Novak policy. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, the double Vax policy, which by the way, Sam hasn't happened at any tournament, and so and when I saw that come out, I thought, oh my goodness. This is going to be tough because the tours to award points demand that it's open to all players and there's no, um, you know, restriction on entry. But the tours backed the double vax policy, and so they had that um, ready to go. But when they talked about exemption, um, that's when it opened a, a door, and so therefore players had got vax because they thought they had to to come, and then this sort of thing, and then it was a slippery slide, and then suddenly. Novak could find an exemption. That all led to having to scramble a lot of new rules, new processes, like the two independent forums that were deciding, mm. um, you know, what the exemptions looked like. And, and so I think that led to a whole range of new things which were done pretty, fairly quickly. So if, I guess the question is, like, just how 
how was that managed and, and where did that net out that, that there was well, obviously Novak didn't get on the plane thinking that was going to happen at the other end. He thought he was getting on to come and actually play. Mm. So I, I, I think you, you've got to look at the whole a deeper dive to review it to just see where that's all at. But I, I what I what you asked me specifically on Craig, I think he was he's actually obliged to try and get every player in the world that he can there <laughs> as best as he can. It's up to potentially others to overrule him on some things. But I'm certainly if I'm in his boat, I'm trying to get every player there. Yeah, I guess it's a tough one, isn't it? It's the what's in the best interest of the the tournament as opposed to what's in the community's interest. It's a very fine line, and I guess there will be a little bit to play out about it. Pete, you are so generous with your time, and I've taken up far too much of it, but we, it is whichever way you've fallen on so many of the things that have occurred from the start before the start to well after the end, because we're still talking about it now, we've never had an Australian Open like this um, in every facet you could possibly think of. So in that regard, we're still talking about it and we can't wait uh, to see uh, what plays out after and, and then for next year as well. Thanks so much. No, my pleasure, Sam. Good to talk to you. Peter Johnston, the tournament director of Kuyong. Uh, always an interesting chat. Um, and always so generous with his time. Hey, uh, probably time to call last drinks, I, I reckon. one three hundred seven three six seven three six zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. I've got about a minute and a half on the other side of this, and I've got some texts to get through uh, that you've sent through this evening as well on the temper text line. Temper mattress like no other. We'll wrap it up on the Sporting Capital after this. I wonder if I should get a bell like they have in a pub for this year on the Sporting Capital. Last drinks bell. We'll ring that. Uh, thanks to all your calls and all your texts uh, off the temper, 0433 Just a couple coming through on a few different things, a range of topics. Uh, Whoopie do they want a doubles title. The best men's players don't play doubles. Um, they play some mixed doubles sometimes. Curios is a sideshow at best, not worth the ticket price. I wonder if that might change now. I wonder if there is something in doubles that it can be more of the the circus-style atmosphere, um, almost like the Big Bash compared to Test cricket, if, if you like, what doubles could be uh, and what direction you could take it in. Um, and off the text, uh, the women's finals should be five sets. Not sure how that is a scheduling issue that cannot be resolved via a number of alternatives. Kane Corns was spot on this morning. That's from Sean. It's an interesting conversation, that one too, isn't it? Um, and uh, off the text, Johnny D text in. Uh, you know I'm a full cricket enough, Sam. I'm flat as a tack. There's no one-day international series. I want more cricket. Hanging out for the Sri Lanka series and the T20 World Cup. I love ODIs. Uh, Dean, women's cricket should have three tests for the Ashes series, not one match. It was very exciting, incredibly close. Uh, Roger, when it comes to the Justin Langer situation and whether or not he will be um, renewed as Australian coach, sounds like the spoilt little cricketers get their way. Don't yell at me. Sooks, that's from Roger. Um, I'm in the business of winning has come through from David. It's a national team that belongs to the people, not upsets, not upset individual. The, the coy is winning. Keep Langer until the players to suck it up and get on with winning. Um, and, uh, another one off the text. Oh my, the short memories. I don't get the presses. Um, universal love for Langer. A year ago, Langer, Payne, Lyon and Stark infamously coughed up, uh, unheard of back to back series losses to India's Reggie's. Throwing away the SCG and the Gabba test. Perhaps sharper minds inside and outside those dressing rooms won't forgive or forget. Unlike the media, is laying it in three formats, three overseas tours, a World Cup and an Ashes 2023, all in 14 months. A bridge too far. That's from Bondi Jack. Uh, Jason says, thank you. Um, thank you. Have a great night. Stay safe. I'll see you all again tomorrow night.
For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.